parcel of land once owned by one of the first black families to settle in Santa Monica back in 1905. Here in the Pico neighborhood, the duplex the Brunson family called home is long gone, and in its place is a dead-end street and busy freeway off-ramp. The property was new. This was a new, modern. We got us a, a little piece, you know. And now the government says no. No, you don't, black people. That's Nichelle Monroe. In the early 1960s, the federal government forced her grandparents from their home here, using eminent domain, to make way for the I-10 freeway. What I do remember my grandfather saying was that they didn't get nearly what the property was worth. Thousands of households, many of them black or Latino, were displaced in Santa Monica two generations ago by urban renewal policies and freeway building. Well, now the city's offering a small number of those families or their descendants access to affordable rental housing as a form of public penance. The program launches amid a first-of-its-kind state-level effort to study and recommend reparations for black Californians harmed by systemic racism. Reporter Aaron Schrank has been taking a look at Santa Monica's new program and asking displaced descendants like Monroe how the city's attempt at redress compares with what they've lost. Unlike most families, Monroe's grandparents were able to stay in Santa Monica when the freeway split the Pico neighborhood in half. They moved to another property they owned nearby, which became a hub of family activity for Monroe for decades to come. I love Santa Monica. I love my beach. All my fondest childhood memories were in Santa Monica. We would converge upon my grandparents' house and spend weeks there terrorizing them, having, you know, the best sandlot times of our, of our lives. Today, Monroe lives in Alhambra, but commutes here for her job and to attend Calvary Baptist, the historic black church she grew up going to. I'm there seven days a week, <laughs> pretty much. Every day for work and for church and rehearsal for choir. Monroe says although her grandparents lost their home before she was born, she feels the financial and psychological ripple effects every day. You feel as though nothing is your own as long as there is a system in place to make sure that you have less. They can change the rules at any time for any asinine reason. It doesn't have to make sense. It doesn't have to be just. It just is. Now, 100 families who can prove their Santa Monica homes were taken will be moved to the front of the city's extremely long line for its below-market housing program. That program matches people based on their income with vacancies in Santa Monica properties that have deed restrictions, requiring them to charge affordable rates. The city made this offer to people displaced by the freeway in the 60s, as well as those displaced in the 1950s to make way for the construction of its civic center. That's where I met historian Allison Rose Jefferson on a recent afternoon. She says this neighborhood close to the beach and the city's downtown was once a hub of black business and black community known as Belmar Triangle. The folks that were homeowners that were displaced, many of them were unable to purchase property in Santa Monica it was just out now discrimination from the white realtors and from the people who lived in neighborhoods. So many of those folks, they moved. Jefferson says Belmar was home to several popular Black-owned establishments like Caldwell's Dance Hall and Lo Bonita Bathhouse. These businesses are all gone now, but Jefferson helped preserve their stories in a public history exhibition on permanent display here at a public sports field, which the city named Historic Belmar Park. 
if this had remained an area where you had African-Americans who were owning property, developing businesses, I mean, this could be a whole nother area. It might not look all white the way it does now. Today, just 5% of the Santa Monica population is black. The city's black population grew steadily for the first half of the last century, and it more than doubled between 1950 and 1960. Then it leveled off. There are actually fewer black families living in Santa Monica today than in 1960, according to census data, even as the population has grown. I am thrilled at the idea that within the next few years, we're going to see some families who were forced out of our town welcomed back. Former Santa Monica Mayor Kevin McKeown proposed the affordable housing program a few years ago as a public apology to those displaced. He says it's a small step towards justice, but hopefully one of many. You know, as, as much as this is an act of restorative justice, it's nowhere near enough to make up for what has happened in our country for centuries. Uh, this is a good first step, but I hope nobody thinks this is the end of what we need to do in Santa Monica or in the country. Local governments have been under more pressure to reckon with historical injustice since the murder of George Floyd in 2020 and the Black Lives Matter protests that followed. In nearby Manhattan Beach, the state recently agreed to return a parcel of land known as Bruce's Beach to the descendants of the black family they stole it from a century before. The program in Santa Monica isn't offering to return any lost property. It's simply offering a shot at an affordable apartment. Michelle Monroe, whose grandparents' home was taken, has applied. But she says the program won't make up for what she lost. We're supposed to be grateful that we might get on a list to overpay for rent. Rent for property stolen. We stole your property. We gave you two cents for it. Here, just rent this property. Give away your money, your hard-earned money. What is that? What is? What am I supposed to make of that? Jeremy Divinity's great-grandfather lost his Pico neighborhood home to the freeway construction in 1959 and moved away to Pacoima. Divinity says the housing pilot sounds good, but he agrees with Monroe. It doesn't actually restore any of what was stolen from his family. Real justice is really money in the value of that property that we had lost in 1959, where it's like it just lost generational value, lost generational wealth, lost generational opportunity. Divinity says one of his family members filled out an application for the program only to find out they earned too much income to qualify. The city isn't sure how many eligible people are out there, but they're only promising to help 100. The application period opened two weeks ago and closes on February 22nd. If more than 100 historically displaced households sign up, they'll all be entered into a lottery system and some applicants will get nothing. It encapsulates Santa Monica in a nutshell where it's this liberal bastion of hope and ideals and diversity. But it's just like it's a show of face, in a sense. Like, it's, it's very performative. It doesn't get to the real issue of the displacement. Michelle Monroe says if leaders in Santa Monica or anywhere in the country want to get real about reparations, they should start by asking themselves a question. If this were you and your family, what would you want to have done? What would you like to see? And be honest with yourself. What would you want in return? You would want fair market value. You would want to get back what was taken. And I want nothing less than that. For KCRW, I'm Aaron Schrank.
You certainly clouded the mind of that judge, Scully. Even if Modell could, he didn't need to. We barely had a case against him. Oh, we had enough to get past a simple preliminary hearing. Modell psyched the guy out. He put the whammy on him. Please explain to me the scientific nature of the whammy. Are you non-white males in general, and the darker they are, the ones who carry the label of black. Sometimes they're not dark ones. I mean, some of them are very light. Some of them look like they're white. But they carry the label of what we call black, black, if you just want to double whammy it. Climate change means more flooding in much of the U.S., and flood risk will increase by about 25 percent in the next 30 years. A new study predicts those future floodwaters will disproportionately hit black communities in the South. NPR's Rebecca Hersher has the story. Rising sea levels, stronger hurricanes, and heavier rainstorms. That is the triple whammy. That many parts of the country are already dealing with. All three are caused by climate change, and all three cause floods. Reza Marsuli studies flood risk at Stevens Institute of Technology in New Jersey and was not involved in the new study. It is very expensive, and if you accumulate that cost over time, then it's going to be a shocking number. Last year alone, floods in the U.S. caused upwards of $20 billion in damage, according to early estimates. In the future, the cost could be even higher, the new study finds. The authors estimated flood risk in the U.S. will increase by about a quarter between now and 2050. So this isn't a pie-in-the-sky projection. Oliver Wing is a researcher at the U.K. flood modeling company Fathom and is one of the authors of the new study. These risks are very likely to be experienced by people that are alive right now. The study was published in the journal Nature Climate Change. The analysis relies on a complex national flood model that takes into account the effects of climate change as well as terrain and where buildings are located. The model suggests that the biggest increases in future flood risk will be in the south. And when the authors looked at the racial demographics of the places with the highest flood risk, they found that those communities had a higher proportion of black residents. There's no way to avoid this floodier immediate future. It's already baked into the climate that humans have created by burning fossil fuels. Anything we do right now to reduce greenhouse gas emissions, for instance, will probably have an effect beyond 2050, but it won't have an effect on flood risk today. And so what that means is we actually have to just accept that this is going to take place and find ways of dealing with it. But cutting greenhouse gas emissions is the only way to avoid even more catastrophic flooding later this century. In the meantime, Wing points out, it is not too late to help people. Some buildings that are in harm's way can be protected from flooding. In many ways, the solutions here are conceptually simple. Don't build any more stuff in the way of flood. New development in many flood zones is currently accelerating, despite the risks. Rebecca Hersher, NPR News. A terrible thing to waste. Environmental racism and its assault on the American mind. Written by Harriet A. Washington. Earlier this month, the Environmental Protection Agency issued an order for a metal processing facility in southeast Atlanta to stop work until the company has a plan for dealing with its hazardous waste. Located near the airport, TAV Holdings has operated since 2015, shredding automobile parts and other items to recycle different types of metal. Recent findings by the EPA and researchers have confirmed the fears of neighbors in the area. Preliminary testing shows elevated levels of lead in nearby soil. 
Thomas Wheatley is with Axios Atlanta, which recently published an investigative report on the pollution. He joins us now this morning. Welcome, Thomas Wheatley. Good to have you. Thanks for having me, Lisa. Nice to be here. Well, it's a pleasure to have you. You know, as a parent, this parent, this really piqued my interest in that the health concerns are serious enough that a nearby middle school uh, is in jeopardy. That school, uh, according to your report, has posted signs for students not to go beyond the campus fence. Is that true? Yeah, it's a um, Crawford Long Middle School. It's uh, located uh, in the Glen Rose Heights uh, neighborhood down in far south Atlanta. Um, uh, along the southern border of the of the school is a creek, and on the other side of that creek is TAV Holdings, which is uphill. And so uh, during storms, what's happening is that, uh, according to environmental advocates and the EPA, is that rain mixes with these giant mounds of industrial waste that they have on site, which overwhelms the company's stormwater systems. And all that flows downhill toward this creek. So you have the creek, you have the nearby middle school. Go into detail about this area. What makes it so vulnerable to this toxic runoff? Well, in, in addition to just the geography, uh, you know, of, of, of the site, it's a uh, it, it's what many would call a an environmental justice case in, in the in the sense that it's uh, it has all these indicators, demographic indicators, uh, a large number of people living on low incomes, uh, large number of people of color uh, who are oftentimes um, having to deal with the burdens of industrial sites like this. The EPA has a monitoring tool um, that you can use online to look at different areas uh, called EJ Screen. And it has all these indicators listed out. And Glen Rose Heights is, is high on all of these. It's located near, it's a, it's a very quiet, nice residential neighborhood that just on the other side of a small unnamed creek uh, is really an industrial park just right next to the airport, pretty much. Well, and you indicated the area is vulnerable and often overlooked because it is a poor area and uh, people of color living in that area. But those residents start crying foul. So what were the signs of pollution that they started noticing first? Well, it's really interesting. If you look at the paper trail, it goes back to about 2017 when uh, city inspectors uh, and environmental inspectors with the state started coming out uh, in response to complaints. So you had complaints coming in about uh, murky discharge. You had complaints about um, industrial waste flowing into uh, the, the creek. And these complaints just kept on coming. Um, if you look at the city of Atlanta records, there are photos of kind of gray, muddy bogs and uh, these little um, materials that are called microplastics, but they're hazardous waste in the water. Um, and people, people started noticing this. I, I talked to one resident who, a resident who said that, you know, whenever it would rain, the creek would turn a dark gray. Um, inspectors kept on coming out, but complaints kept coming in. Wow, not a good sign there, dark gray. So then the state has been looking into this, but you know, you always want immediate results, especially when someone's health is in jeopardy. What is the state doing at this point? Well, that's the that's the big question that uh, environmental advocates like the Altamaha Riverkeeper, who's been going out there um, since about last year and conducting soil samples and uh, working with other partners to determine what's happening and to what extent. Um, 
the EPD has turned the case over to the EPA uh, because the EPA has greater authority and greater jurisdiction to kind of step in on these matters. Uh, so their EPD is really letting EPA take the lead. But EPA is uh, on January 10th, it uh, issued an order to TAV Holdings, basically saying all these hazardous materials that are being released into the environment, you got to stop them down. Uh, you, you need to do so to protect health, uh, human health in the environment. They want them to get the appropriate permits. It's another thing that EPA says is that this facility has only had an industrial stormwater permit. It hasn't had a permit to handle all these materials that it that it does every day. Um, and needs to come up with a plan also to address whatever contamination uh, has been caused. You uh, interviewed the director of a nonprofit dedicated to protecting Georgia's rivers, who said this is the worst case he's seen, uh, and it's not on a Superfund registry. Why not? And in your reporting, did you find it to be one of the worst cases that you've ever reviewed? Well, it, <clears throat> excuse me. As to why it's not on a Superfund registry, it's a it takes a it takes a long process, and the, you know the bigger question is is that why is it taking so long? Um, and that's what just the uh, Fletcher Sancy with the Altamaha Riverkeeper kept coming back to was that the EPD is the state enforcement agency responsible for this. They issue the permits and how how have we gotten to this point? Um, so EPA responded to, uh, I mean, I'm sorry, EPD uh, said that when they got a complaint, they investigated it and they brought in the EPA. Um, it all comes back to resources, time, and mission. Thomas Wheatley with Axios Atlanta. I know you'll be following this very quickly, uh, very, you know, from day to day. And and we would like to have you come back uh, with the, an update for us on this uh, all important issue. I would love to. We'll definitely be following it. Thanks for having me. Thank you, Thomas. Medical apartheid, the dark history of medical experimentation on black Americans from colonial times to the present. Black women in America are three times more likely to die from a pregnancy-related cause than white women. Maternal mortality is just one health disparity that researchers and doctors are working to understand, and the pandemic has shone a spotlight on the most glaring health inequities over the last two years. For more on what those inequities are and what the solutions might be, I talked with three people who are paying close attention to the issues. We're joining us, uh, Dr. Kelly Tice. Uh, she's the Health Equity Officer for Florida Blue. Dr. Tice, thank you so much for being here. Happy to be here. Thank you. We're also joined by Dr. Saleh Rahman. He is Professor of Medicine and Co-Director of the Focused Inquiry and Research Experience Program at UCF's College of Medicine, where he teaches about culture, health, and society. Dr. Rahman, thank you as well. Thank you. Glad to be here. And we're also joined by journalist Retta Peoples. Uh, she recently produced a series of articles and many documentaries on healthcare disparities. Retta, thanks as well. Thank you for having me. Ritter, I want to start with you. You've written about three of the factors in healthcare disparities, legislative, environmental, and generational. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about why you decided to focus on these three aspects of health disparities. Well, actually, initially, um, those three aspects were uh, my targets. And then as I got deeper into it, I realized that there was a social uh, justice element to this as well. So um, I also touched on in, in the many documentaries about um, health inequities, which is different from health disparities a little bit. It has that social determinant 
that's in there. So all four of those things, generational habits, environmental, legislative, and social were just um, four of the things that I thought would really get people to understand the basics about health disparities. One of the other things that really stands out too, and you, you write about this, is the disproportionately high maternal mortality rates amongst uh, black and brown women. Um, what are some of the reasons that the experts are telling you about the disparity in maternal mortality and, and are lawmakers paying attention to this? Yeah, one of the experts told me that black women, non-Hispanic black women, are three times more likely to die from childbirth in childbirth um, than white women, you know? And then when you go to um, pregnancy issues and and things like that during the pregnancy, out of 100,000 women, 11 will Mm -hmm. die from pregnancy-related issues and causes. When it gets to Black women, that's really non-Hispanic Black women. It's 44 out of 100,000 women who will die from pregnancy-related causes. You know, we just have to ask ourselves, what's causing that? How do we fix it? Dr. Kelly Tice, I want to turn to you now. Your position, health equity officer, is is a a new one at Florida Blue, but before that, you were a family physician, right? I'm wondering, kind of, in your career, what are some of the biggest gaps in healthcare access and equity that you've seen? And, And just thinking about this issue of maternal mortality and some of the statistics that Reda mentioned are quite staggering. What what do you kind of think about as you as you contemplate this issue? Well, first, let me clarify that I came to Florida Blue about three years ago as a senior medical director for medical affairs uh, after having had a career in public health. Mm-hmm. And this position of uh, chief health equity officer actually also includes a promotion to uh, vice president of medical affairs. Uh, The reason that's important, uh, not only is this the chief health equity officer position new and and very important because of the position that Guidewell and Florida Blue has chosen to take in terms of working towards solutions for um, health disparities, but it's also important because as vice president of medical affairs, the work that uh, was already under uh, my area of responsibility as it relates to um, looking at emerging infections, for instance, so public health surveillance, working closely with our quality teams and ensuring that we have um, equitable outcomes, responding to as clinical lead for COVID-19 as we watched COVID show us where health disparities existed, right? These aren't new conversations. So it is a logical expansion or extension of the role, but the, the dedicated focus with a, having a chief health equity officer really serves to allow us to expand some of the collaborative partnerships and relationships that are necessary to solve this. To your question about uh, maternal morbidity, you know, just as with infant mortality, these are not numbers that are new to us, unfortunately. These are conversations that those of us who have worked in this area have had for for decades. What has been missing is the ability, uh, the desire, and the resources to host and have the right conversations and to reach upstream and address the things that become those determinants, right? So in each of these issues, maternal morbidity uh, significantly so, has a lot of factors. It's related to the health of the mom at the time of pregnancy and delivery. It's related to stigma 
you know, Black women require, in many cases, an advocate, a champion, in order to be heard in the health setting. They are less likely to be believed if they report pain or discomfort or distress. And, and all of those things have to be solved with a collaborative approach because the things that drive it actually come from multiple different factors. And so the solutions have to be intensely and, and specifically collaborative. Professor Rahman, what are some of the biggest health disparities that you've been tracking and, and what are your thoughts on you know some of the, the causes? I'm, I'm wondering too, kind of from an academic point of view, has there been a change in the time that you've been working on some of these issues? Like, are you seeing people become more aware of these disparities and what needs to happen to to uh, to change these things? Thank you so much. I, I think the uh, reflection coming from my um, uh, panelists, co-panelists, what they said, I totally agree with all of it. And uh, from academic viewpoint, we must understand the intersectionality if we understand, want to understand the health inequality, inequity, both. Mm-hmm. And what I mean by that, that every person, whoever residing in this community, residing in this society, are affected by multiple factors. And being a minority could be even double dipping, triple dipping sometime. For example, I have started cancer uh, last 20 years, screening behavior, screening, even in Tallahassee, I was 12 years faculty at Florida a University with uh, Tallahassee Memorial Hospital and also um, uh, affiliated with the FSU College of Medicine. Mm-hmm. We had uh, multiple National Institute of Health funded projects. I directed, co-directed. Uh, for the underserved community in Gasden County, in Leon County. And I can explain some of these are improving, but some are not. And that goes even deeper to our policy level issues, uh, structural issues, systemic issues. Those are, needs to be addressed. For example, I have been tracking something called community economic status. I coined that word by measuring you know, average income or median income per zip code, availability of resources, transportation, distance to mammography facilities like that. And as you know, now we, we call the zip code is better predicted than genetic code for reason uh, because of that. We recently did a study with our Florida cancer data and two of my students actually looked into top five cancers and we compared first 15 years disparity versus last 15 years disparity. In fact, not very significant change happened. Change happening, but that change could be attributable to the other factors, not a drastic change in our policy. I wanted to ask about education too, Professor Rahman, because part of your role is helping guide these medical students and the, this, you know, the next generation of doctors. So how important is education in the, of the next generation of healthcare professionals and bridging some of these gaps in healthcare? And I wonder too about a broader pool of new graduate doctors and medical professionals. Is that going to help right some of these, these wrongs that have been around for a long time? Absolutely. I saw that um, as an academician, and that was my focus of even teaching, even a research area. Uh, I believe 
our future physicians can not only make a difference in their own practices, but become an advocate for change. And I, I thought um, in society, even in po to policymakers, the physicians are highly regarded uh, about their opinion, about their uh, expert views. So those needs to be bring into an advocacy and an active change, action type of change. For mm -hmm. example, in, in the curriculum, Institute of Medicine, uh, American Medical Association, everybody recognized that our curriculum are not sufficiently training our phys future physicians, understanding the concept of intersectionality, disparity, equity, how uh, different type of factors are affecting, like some, someone with low education, uh, low income, uh, living in a, a poor condition, socioeconomic condition, all those will be uh, leading to a social stressor. And that has huge impact even biologically. We can prove mm -hmm. that the person's health status will not be okay. Even the COVID, I think, exposed a, a tremendous amount that disparity, like, you know, when an African-American, uh, say, for example, uh, getting the disease or cases, uh, if we consider uh, with the uh, non-Hispanic white population, the death is coming 1.7 times and hospitalization coming 2.5 times. Mm. So that, that signifies that so many factors are playing role, starting from even, even in our curriculum, we need to understand when we interview or take a history of a patient, what are the social factors we actually gather? We mm. only ask about, okay, do you smoke? Do you drink this type of... So we didn't never ask or... I'm not saying never. I mean, some people are doing definitely. Um, uh, we, we do not explore their social support, social network, mm -hmm. uh, their social stressor coming from different factors. So those are the factors and how interprofessional um, combination like social work, nursing, physical therapy, pharmacy student, all together can create a comprehensive plan. For, for the betterment of the patient. So those are the education much needed. And that's what we are thriving for at UCFCOM. And I think many uh, medical school are uh, heading to that direction. If you're just joining us, we're talking about health disparities. We're with Dr. Kelly Tice, uh, Professor Saleh Rahman, and journalist Reda Peoples. And speaking of COVID-19, that does bring up a point that all of you have, have mentioned, touched on and, and, and talked about. Ritter, I want to come back to you because in some of your reporting on health disparities, you highlighted how the focus at the start of the pandemic was on the elderly as a population of significant risk of COVID, but there wasn't so much a focus on black and brown um, people, even though those households were affected worse than white households. Just talk a little bit about you know what you uncovered there and, and whether you have a sense that maybe that disparity has changed at all in the last two years, or are we still facing the same kind of disparity in, in that regard? Some of these health disparities that we're talking about now, a lot of us know and have known for a long time that there are a lot of disparities and inequities in the Black community. Um, Dr. Fauci got on stage and actually said, talked about the health disparities when it comes to specifically Black people. And I remember watching that or hearing that and going into the living room and, and watching the TV saying, I can't believe that somebody actually just spoke out about health disparities in a discussion that really wasn't about health disparities. It was about COVID. Mm -hmm. um, so I, I thought that that was really, really good. Um, 
legislatively, uh, there's had there had have been um, numerous things that a lot of legislators have tried to do um, in the path in the past. I think back in the '80s, the National Cancer Institute pulled together a um, task force, and that task force was on Black and minority health. That actually led to legislation. Uh, like the Minority Health Improvement Act. So that kind of took us down a road that was supposed to uh, close the gap. However, mm-hmm. I don't know if we're really where we need to be. Well, I know we're not where we need to be as far as closing the gap. It's interesting. Um, it'll be interesting to find out what some of those ideas as we move forward in this, what some of those ideas uh, will be to help close that gap. And I do wonder, too, if some of them could be applied to things other than COVID-related or pandemic-related, right? If we're talking about kind of bigger systemic changes to, to help sort of bridge some of these these inequities. Absolutely. And, you know, even with COVID, in some areas, it was hard to get to a place that had the vaccine. When the vaccine first came to Florida, they were, um, I believe they were in the grocery stores like Publix. Mm-hmm. And a lot of those grocery stores aren't in Black communities. So that made it very difficult for us to get to places to be vaccinated. You know that it's down for even pay, right? You know when I work, I ain't your slave, right? You know I ain't shucking the job and high-fiving. You know this ain't back in the days, right? I first met Marilyn Mosby at an event for the amazing group Black Girls Vote in Baltimore in 2014 with the late great representative Elijah Cummings. And then again, when I covered the Baltimore uprising in the wake of the police killing of Freddie Gray a year later. Now, I can recall thinking the state attorney's push to vigorously prosecute the officers who killed Freddie Gray was a bold move, particularly for a rather rare black state attorney. Police are rarely held to account in the deaths of unarmed people, particularly black people. And the police unions are powerful and their political influence is real. Those officers were eventually cleared by a judge's ruling. Mosby has taken other political risks during her tenure, moving to decriminalize sex work and marijuana, which particularly matters in a city like Baltimore, where poverty is high and the police community relationship is notoriously poor. So I'll admit, I was surprised when attorney Mosby came back into the news cycle at very much the other end of the spectrum, accused by the Justice Department of financial crimes and facing up to 20 years in prison if convicted. Yes, I mean the same Justice Department that seems to be awfully slow when it comes to the former president, Donald Trump. So I asked if she would come on to the show to talk about it, and she and her attorney said yes. So joining me now is Marilyn Mosby, state's attorney for Baltimore City, and her attorney, a. Scott Bolden. Thank you both for being here. Thank I really you. appreciate Thank it. And I know this is, a, of course, is a high-pressure situation. You, there is a, an arraignment this Friday. Yeah, there's an arraignment this Friday, Joy. And, uh, I mean, for you, who is somebody who has, you know, devoted your life to, you know, putting the bad guys in jail and fighting for criminal, for justice, um, how does that feel to be in this position? It doesn't feel good. Yeah. I mean, to be honest with you, you know, as I expected as a state's attorney that, you know, fighting for racial justice in the criminal justice system, fighting to end mass incarceration in a state where you have the largest sort of incarceration of black people in the entire nation. I understood that I was going to get pushed back, but never did I or could I have ever imagined that I would be mocked 
that I would be ridiculed, that I would receive hate mail, that I would receive death threats. They would describe how my husband would be killed coming out of my house and how no police officer would, officers would respond, how they would target my children, right? And I, I never expected the lawsuits and I never expected to be on this side of the fence where when the only thing that I'm attempting to do is to provide equal justice to all, regardless of race, sex, religion, and occupation. So, so let, let's do the elephant in the room. Let's talk about the charges. What you're accused of, um, you know, when you buy a home, you can take money out of your 401k. Yep. Um, there are strict rules as to when you can do it to take money out early. Um, you are accused of taking money out of your 401k early to buy homes um, and, and not being honest about why. Using the CARES Act, you know, which benefits people who are financially having financial issues, um, and then using... Um, sort of incorrect information about liens, um, not disclosing them, and using that to get loans. That's sort of the, the summary of what you're accused of. So let me, How do you respond let me just that? be clear, and I'll defer to my attorney on the specifics, mm -hmm. but this has been a long-term investigation that has gone through every aspect of my life. From my charitable donations to my tax returns, they have interviewed um, every p political do donator. They have gone to my hairdresser, my children's dance instructors. And this is ultimately, they sent subpoenas to black churches throughout the city of Baltimore. In an election year, I'm four months from my election, mm -hmm. right? <laughs> and this is what they come back with, me accessing my own personal funds that I put away every single week. And so, you know, at the end of the day, I, and again, I'll, I'll defer to my attorney, there's ulterior motives for something like this, for, for an attack like this. But when you bring an indictment, if, you, if I may, when you bring an indictment four months before an election, when you don't sit down with the defense and tell them what you're looking for and what you're looking at before you bring the indictment, you're not trying to find justice or truth. You're trying to affect the outcome of her reelection effort. When you have a prosecutor like Leo Wise, who targets historically African-American elected officials, who gave two contributions, probably the only contributions he's ever given, mm -hmm. to to her opponents in her last election, and he leads this prosecution. It should have been a criminal, it started off as a criminal tax investigation, and now you have these charges that are not only false, but we've got exculpatory evidence to prove them wrong. So, so talk a little bit about that, because there, there are two prosecutors on. There's Leah Wise, who, to your point, is true. He has donated to your opponent uh, in, mm -hmm. in the past. There's a second prosecutor on who's a Democratic appointee, who's, who's not sort of in the Leah Wise sort of, you know, sort of mm -hmm. world. And what they're essentially saying is that, you know, these were kind of ill-gotten gains. Like, they were used, even though they were your money, that you're using your, your 401k money, that you violated the rules for how you could access it and didn't yeah, but there's no tell about sort of things like tax liens and things but, you should have done. But there's not a, there's no objective standard for that. This is a subjective standard. Remember, this isn't PPP money. Okay. This is money, her own money in her 457B. And if there's anyone in America that wasn't financially impacted one way or the other by COVID, this COVID relief plan allowed her to take this money. That's the law, if you will. In regard to the homes that she bought, the mortgage applications, um, though you certainly, we were not aware, she was not aware of the tax liens that issue. And given the IRS and the un understaffing and, and, and overwork issues we've seen, uh, we could have certainly shared that with the government. But this was a criminal tax investigation. And so, again, if you're not willing to talk with us, this is a sitting government official who every day 
wakes up to do law enforcement and enforce the law and protect the citizens of Baltimore, if you won't talk with her or her lawyers before you get an indictment, again, you're not really interested in justice. So are you saying that, you know, you attempted to talk with this prosecutor? Did you attempt to contact the prosecutor to explain what happened, to explain, like, how this money was acquired and you were rebuffed? Is that, is absolutely. That the, I can the tell you that, that we have offered to, I offered to go in front of the grand jury mm -hmm. <laughs> for whatever they were coming at me with. And and they have rejected that. But this is more so about the fact that he wasn't able to do what he did in his donations, which was to support my opponents. And he's using this indictment four months before my election to have this cloud of aspersion over my head. And so I get it. Like, I have done things as a prosecutor that a lot of other prosecutors have not done in this country, whether that is holding police accountable when a lot of other prosecutors in this country would not do so, whether that is ending the war on drugs, which we know was a war on black people in the city of Baltimore, whether that is exonerating 12 innocent black men who the criminal justice system was willing and able to allow to rot for 300, cumulatively 300 years in jail for crimes they did not commit. Right? I've done things that would upset the status quo, but to understand and to recognize all that they've attempted to do, I've been mocked, I've been ridiculed, I've gotten hate mail, I've gotten death threats, I've, I've gotten it all. I've gotten lawsuits, OIG investigations, state ethics investigations, they've been coming for my law license since I charged those officers in Freddie Gray. They, they literally kept an open and pending investigation against me for three years. And so I get it. But at the end of the day, what I hope most people in the city of Baltimore understand and recognize is that this is more about my election than anything else. And so... You know, and I guess that is the question, right? Because I think for a lot of people that are sort of looking at this case, they're sort of looking at the DOJ and saying, wait a minute, you know, you have Donald Trump with sort of decades and decades and decades <laughs> exactly. of not paying taxes exactly. and uh, seeming to defraud insurance companies, et cetera, and there's been sort of no action. Mm -hmm. This was, was this a publicly announced indictment? How public was it? Because I think that is the dichotomy, I think, that's The government released the indictment and to the press and to her lawyers. Mm -hmm. Uh, a week or so ago, and that's when we first got notice of it. As I said, normally you would have a meeting with the defense attorneys. But but let's talk about where we are right now. We're four months out from her election. Mm -hmm. We are ready for trial. The government should be ready for trial. We're certainly going to try to get the indictment dismissed, if you will. Mm -hmm. But we finally have an independent arbiter, an independent judge, federal judge, to look at everything that we've talked about, everything the government has done. We went to the Office of Professional Responsibility at DOJ. They said no. We went to the Criminal Tax Division of the of DOJ. They said no. And so now we have a federal judge who's going to take a and look so at this. The federal judge is going to look at the actual sort of allegations one by one. Is, is your allegation... And the that, conduct of the government prosecutors. So you're doing both. I mean, exactly. is, is it an actual innocence claim saying I did not, that you did not access this money, or is more the claim about the unfairness of the, of the It's certainly both. Is it both? It's both. It's sort of both and right? we lead with the motion to dismiss mm -hmm. the indictment based on bad faith and bad uh, conduct on the part of the uh, conflicts on the part of the government prosecutor. And then secondly, we're ready for trial. We want to take this to trial within 60 days because Ms. Mosby is still running for re-election. And so let's find out. Let's find out what it's going to be. Let me, let me play a little bit of the announcement that you made. Um, you came out pretty, pretty forthrightly and stood in front of your workplace uh, and made an announcement. I'm going to play a little bit of it right now. Take a look. I offered to prove my innocence by making myself available to present exculpatory evidence to the grand jury. But the U.S. attorney and the lead prosecutor in the case, who has donated to my political opponents and who has personal animus towards me, has refused to allow me to do so.
Please don't be fooled. We are now five months from our next election, and this indictment is merely a political ploy by my political adversaries to unseat me. How, how long do you intend to fight this out? Like, what is your, is your, I mean, you're four months from an election. You're going to have to go through the process. You are running for re-election. Let me just say one thing. I have fought Donald Trump, who said I needed to be prosecuted. I have fought against William Barr, who called me a rogue prosecutor. I have fought against my Republican governor, who doesn't agree with my policies. I know I've been through it all. I am built for this, Joy. And so I understand the shoulders that I stand on, and I'm ready to fight. I know I've done nothing wrong. So I'm ready to go to trial tomorrow. Put this on trial right now so I can prove my innocence. But let's get to the election because I know th that's what this is all about. Thank you very much. Marilyn Mosby, um, Attorney Marilyn Mosby, A. Scott Bolden. Thank you both. New at 11, we're hearing the dramatic 911 calls for help as teens say they had to fend off a racially charged attack. News 6's Treasure Roberts is at the scene in Osteen. A man is now facing hate crime charges after yelling racial slurs at three teens and vandalizing their car. We obtained the 911 call from the Volusia County Sheriff's Office where the teens detailed the whole incident to dispatchers, saying it was frightening. Hi, Volusia County 911. This phone out and Is everything okay? Three teens shaken and calling for help after a hostile attack Saturday. Kids did the right thing. Volusia County Sheriff Mike Chitwood says the victims were pumping gas at a Circle K near Osteen. By their own, their own admission, they're acting like teenagers and being loud and boisterous as they're pumping gas. He says that's when 58-year-old Richard Burnham drove up in his truck, got out and aggressively yelled out racial slurs to the mainland high school students. Two of them were black. The outburst leading to a heated conversation. Burnham then caught on camera walking into the store. The sheriff says after buying a case of beer, Burnham came back to his truck and grabbed a metal pipe. Somebody hit our window. With the pole. With the pole. The victims tell deputies Burnham began beating their car and shattered one of the windows. We left because we were scared. The teens say Burnham followed them a few miles before giving up the chase. Not long after, the teens drove back to the gas station and called 911. This could have been a deadly attack. It's unprovoked. Deputies say they were able to track Burnham down using this surveillance video. He was arrested Wednesday and is now facing hate crime charges. The bottom line is these folks were attacked because of their race. When questioned, Burnham says he was shot with an airsoft gun, but investigators say no airsoft gun was found. He bonded out of jail on Wednesday. In Volusia County, Treasure Roberts getting results, New 6. Listen. Just here. touching on some real issues right here tonight. That's, That's, right. All. That's all. That's all. I want y'all to observe the excellence here. BX providing the Sonics, my man, Minnesota. I'm letting the beat ride out because it's a part that I like when it come up. You know what I'm saying? I take this time to say what's up to my family. <laughs> <laughs> you hear that? You know what I'm saying? For sure. Just observe the excellence of that. That's many. Hey, back. Fall back. Uh-uh, with the guitars. It's hip-hop music. It's good enough to speak for itself. And you gotta do right by it. Minnesota. Ain't no black.
black people in Minnesota? The Minnesota Bureau of Criminal Apprehension is investigating the shooting death of a 22-year-old black man during a no-knock police raid this week in Minneapolis. Amir Locke was shot and killed Wednesday morning by a Minneapolis police officer as he lay on a couch in a downtown apartment. John Collins has our report. Amir Locke's parents spoke publicly today for the first time since their son was shot and killed. His family said he was born in Maplewood and grew up in the Twin Cities suburbs. His father, Andre Locke, described Amir Locke as a good kid who was into music and wanted to help people. Amir didn't deserve what happened. Amir was surprised. Life was taken from him. Amir Locke's family say that he had a permit to carry a gun, which he felt he needed for protection from robberies as he worked for DoorDash. Permit to carry information is not publicly available. However, Locke did not have a criminal history in Minnesota, which would have banned him from owning a firearm. Body cam footage released by the city yesterday shows a Minneapolis police SWAT team carrying out a search warrant at a downtown apartment building. The footage shows officers swarming into the apartment after opening the door with a key fob. Amir Locke is on the couch with a weapon in his hand. Police say he was shot by Officer Mark Hanneman within nine seconds. He died at a nearby hospital. Attorney Ben Crump has taken on the family's civil case. He previously represented George Floyd's family in a $27 million legal settlement after Floyd was killed by a police officer in 2020. If we learned anything from Breonna Taylor, it is that no-knock warrants have deadly consequences for innocent, law-abiding Black citizens. The city of Minneapolis enacted a ban on most no-knock raids in 2020. Officials haven't responded to questions about why they used a no-knock raid in this case. Attorney Jeff Storms called Locke's killing tragic and abhorrent. Our city has to do better. We continue to be known for these colossal civil rights failures. And so now the question is, is the city going to you know, hold itself accountable? And is the, can we believe the city anymore when it says it's going to learn? Minneapolis Mayor Jacob Fry has promised to be transparent as investigations into Locke's killing move forward. This video raises about as many questions as it does answers. And those answers we need to be providing as quickly as possible through a number of investigations that are in fact already underway. Activists also criticized the original narrative released by Minneapolis police. A press release described Locke as a suspect and said he pointed the gun at an officer, which is not visible in the video. The city's interim police chief, Amelia Huffman, later said that Locke was not the target of the search warrant. Locke's mother, Karen Wells, watched the body camera footage before it was released to the public. She vowed to fight for her son and other black men killed by police officers. A mother should never have to see her child executed in that type of manner. I gave birth to Amir, not Minneapolis. I did, and y'all took it. The Hennepin County Medical Examiner's Office characterized Locke's manner of death as homicide. The officer who killed him is on paid administrative leave. Minnesota Attorney General Keith Ellison is partnering with a Hennepin County attorney to decide whether or not the officer who shot Locke should be charged.
Protests are planned throughout the weekend. I'm John Collins, NPR News, Minneapolis. Minneapolis Mayor Jacob Fry is halting the use of no-knock warrants in the city. The move announced last night follows the police killing of 22-year-old Amira Locke during an early morning raid this week at a downtown apartment. Police aren't saying why they opted for a no-knock warrant, but court documents indicate that a man who lived in the apartment that Locke was visiting had threatened police before. And a former neighbor of that apartment tells NPR News that she feared for her safety. Minneapolis police say a SWAT team was serving a search warrant at apartment 701 of the Bolero Flats on behalf of the St. Paul Police Department. The search was part of a homicide investigation, but neither department has said what evidence the officers were after or to whom that evidence may have been connected. On a video that authorities released Thursday, SWAT officers are seen inside a seventh-floor hallway of the Bolero Flats, They approach the apartment door in silence. One inserts a key and they burst inside. In the police body camera footage, Amir Locke is visible under a blanket on a sofa. Locke has a gun in his hand. He doesn't fire it. Officer Mark Hanneman shoots Locke three times before the clip ends. Locke had no criminal record, and Interim Police Chief Amelia Huffman on Thursday walked back a written statement that had called him a, quote, suspect. But another man, Marlon Cornelius Speed, who lives in apartment 701, had violent confrontations with police in the past. The 23-year-old pleaded guilty in 2019 to a misdemeanor charge of interfering with police. Prosecutors say while riding in a squad car, Speed threatened to rape an officer's family members. Wow! Hey, yo, drama, hold up, sir. Hold on, hold on, hold on. Stop the motherfucking record. Right. I want you to pondy replay, drama. Pondy replay. <laughs> <laughs> Give him one more chance, man. Run that shit the fuck back. Prosecutors say while riding in a squad car, Speed threatened to rape an officer's family members, then tried to headbutt him after arriving at the jail. The criminal complaint says Speed then smashed the officer's hand into a concrete pillar. More recently, prosecutors charged Speed with felony domestic assault. In November, he allegedly hit his girlfriend with a belt and choked his sister, who tried to intervene until she nearly passed out. Susan Larson lived in apartment 702 and says she feared for her own safety so much that she left the building just a week ago. I moved on Saturday. I lived right next door. Minneapolis police have not said why they chose to enter the targeted apartment without announcing and waiting first. Criminologist David Klinger at the University of Missouri-St. Louis says fear of violence from the subject of a search may lead officers to opt for a no-knock warrant. The element of surprise can make the person think twice about grabbing a gun, but Klinger says entering suddenly with overwhelming force can also have the opposite effect. The downside is that oftentimes uh, people who are inside a location don't know who it is that's coming in, get confused. It takes a while to get oriented when you are sound asleep, for example. Klinger says because of the risks to officers and civilians, many departments have moved away from using no-knock and knock-announce-and-enter methods to apprehend suspects and obtain evidence. Klinger, who served as a police officer on the West Coast in the early 1980s, is quick to point out that so much about the killing is unknown. He says there needs to be an after-action review that looks at the whole incident, not just Officer Hanneman's decision to shoot Amir Locke. We don't do enough of critiquing everything that led up to that. And from what it sounds like in this situation, a 
detailed review of everything that led up to this would identify critical mistakes that were made. The city has not announced plans to review the shooting itself. Mayor Fry says while his moratorium is in place, the police department is working with national experts to suggest revisions to the MPD's policy on unannounced entries. Matt Sepik, NPR News, Minneapolis. This the city of Chicago. Chicago. Today, a former Chicago police officer walks out of prison. Jason Van Dyke was sentenced to just under seven years in prison and served just over half. He was convicted for shooting and killing teenager Laquan McDonald in 2014. Activists do not think the former officer spent enough time in prison and want to see federal civil rights charges next. NPR's Cheryl Corley is covering the story. Cheryl, good morning. Good morning, Steve. Uh, I guess we should note this ended up being a murder conviction, so just under seven years uh, does sound a little bit short to some people. He could have received a much longer sentence. How did this come about? Well, it's because a jury found Jason Van Dyke guilty of second-degree murder and 16 counts of aggravated battery. Uh, prosecutors had asked for a longer term for 18 to 20 years on the aggravated battery convictions. Mm. But Judge Vincent Gaughan sentenced Van Dyke to 81 months. Uh, as you mentioned, activists here called that a slap on the wrist. Uh, Chicago Kent College law professor Richard Kling says it was interesting. Here's the craziness of the situation. He was found guilty of second-degree murder, and what the judge ruled is second-degree murder sounds like a more serious charge than aggravated battery. Uh, but under Illinois law, aggravated battery is a much more serious charge than second-degree murder. You can get more time. You have to spend more time in prison. Uh, but the judge opted to sentence on that less serious charge. And because Van Dyke received day-to-day -day, uh, good time credit, he was able to serve just a little over three years and get out of prison earlier. Well, let's remember the details of the case for which he was convicted, given that it's been years since it happened in 2014. Yeah, October of 2014, a police dispatcher reported a, a black teenager was breaking into cars, carrying a knife. Officer Van Dyke arrived at the scene, almost immediately jumped out of his car. He fired 16 shots at Laquan McDonald, killing him. And many of those shots hit McDonald after he was already on the ground. You know, the thing about this case is the political overtones. Uh, a dash cam video of the shooting wasn't released until a year later under court order. Uh, critics charged it was a cover-up to get through a mayoral election. Mm. And there was this huge fallout. The police superintendent at the time was fired. The county's top prosecutor was voted out of office. And the mayor at the time, Rahm Emanuel, was sharply criticized for how he handled this case. And he decided not to seek a third term. And the uh, police department must make mandated reforms under a consent decree. But the officer walks away after a little more than three years in prison. So we have a, a black teenager killed by a white officer. How likely is it that federal courts would get or federal prosecutors would get involved? Well, it might be difficult, but those who are calling for it, the NAACP, uh, Jesse Jackson's Rainbow Push and others, point to the uh, federal trial underway in Minneapolis for the three officers in the George Floyd case who are accused of violating Floyd's civil rights by not preventing his murder by former officer Derek Chauvin. They say the same thing should happen with Jason Van Dyke, that he violated the civil rights of Laquan McDonald. But getting those types of charges has been tough for federal prosecutors. They have to prove that an officer willfully broke the law and that their actions weren't the result of a mistake. Cheryl, thanks for the update. Really appreciate it. You're welcome. That's NPR's Cheryl Corley in Chicago. And the subject was blacks and Jews. So 
I asked a question of both of them. Uh, one question I said with a statement that came before the question said, I have often heard the expression black people uh, let me see I'm trying to remember how I said how I presented it I said I have often heard the expression uh, yes black people white people and Jews but I've never heard the expression black people, white people, and Christians. Is there any reason, is there any way that anybody can explain why that is? And Dr. Cornell West said, oh, wow. <laughs> he put his hands up to his temple, I mean, you know, and then he just looked at the ceiling and he didn't say nothing else. So it was a long pause, so I didn't think he was going to say nothing else. So then I said, well, Dr. Lerner, I said, do you have an answer to that? And he said, I pass. And I said, thank you very much, gentlemen. And I sat down. <laughs> See, I don't argue. When I ask a question, I mean, I just listen to the answer. The answer from Dr. West was, oh, wow. <laughs> the answer from Dr. Lerner was, I pass. <laughs> so I left that four-hour meeting, but I didn't answer to my question other than, oh, wow, and I pass. <laughs> I got what I came after. Now, American actress and talk show host Whoopi Goldberg is facing a backlash after she said the Holocaust was not about race. She made the comments on a U.S. talk show, The View, which was discussing a decision by a school board in Tennessee to ban the award-winning graphic Holocaust novel, Moss. The school board said it banned the book because its uh, profanity, nudity and depiction of suicide was inappropriate for 13-year-olds. Goldberg told her co-hosts, if you're going to do this, then let's just be truthful about it, because the Holocaust isn't about race. No, it's not about race. Co-host Joy Bihar pointed out that the Nazis said the Jews were a different race. She then said, but it's not about race. It's not. It's about man's inhumanity to other man. Whoopi Gold, uh, Whoopi's co-host, Ava N uh, Anna Navarro, responded, but it's about white supremacy. It's about going after Jews and gypsies and Roma. Whoopi Goldberg then said, but these are two white groups of people, and co-host Sarah Haynes pointed out that the Nazis didn't see them as white. Then Whoopi added, but you're missing the point. The minute you turn it into race, it goes down this alley. Let's talk about what it, what it is for what it is. It's how people treat each other. It's a problem. The actress has since apologized. Well, with me is our entertainment correspondent, Lisa Mzumba. Lisa, it sounds like a bit of a mess. <laughs> Yes, of course, what Whoopi Goldberg says matters. She was talking on The View, uh, uh, a talk show in the States that airs every single weekday. They discuss all sorts of different issues uh, surrounding the nation and across the globe. And, of course, she's seen as somebody who's a, a prominent you know, woman, a prominent black woman, one of the only black women, for instance, to win an acting Oscar. Uh, now, what she didn't 
do yesterday. She didn't deny the scale or the horror of the Holocaust in, say, terms of numbers. But as you just pointed out, what she did do was say that it wasn't uh, about race. She said it was about, you know, two groups of white people and one's treatment of the other. Now, that's more than an oversimplification. That actually is inaccurate. It diminishes the experience of the Holocaust, as so many people pointed out, who were both upset and offended by what she says. The Anti-Defamation League, uh, Jonathan Greenblatt, said, you know, the Holocaust was about the Nazis' systematic annihilation of the Jewish people, who they deemed to be uh, an inferior race. So the way that she separated race from the actual experience of the Holocaust was deemed by so many to be upsetting and basically wrong. Uh, the Holocaust Museum uh, tweeted out yesterday in what's been widely interpreted as a response to what she said, racism was central to Nazi ideology. Jews weren't defined by religion, but by race. Nazi racist beliefs fueled genocide and mass murder. Now, as you say, uh, Whoopi Goldberg, since she made those comments, has uh, now apologised. She said uh, on today's show, I said the Holocaust is not about race, but about man's inhumanity to man. I should have said it's about both. The Jewish people around the world have always had my support and that will never waver. I'm sorry for the hurt I have caused. So that has been accepted by many uh, as uh, an apology for what she said yesterday, because, as I said, she wasn't trying to diminish in terms of scale what the Holocaust happened. But it's the Holocaust. It's always so important to remember the causes of the Holocaust, why the Nazis behaved as they did so unforgivably. And what Whoopi Goldberg said yesterday was seen by many to chip away at that at a time when around the world anti-Semitism is still, you know, such a big, big, important issue to be dealt with. Yeah, very much so. It just all felt quite clumsy. Her explanations, her attempts at rectifying what she was saying just felt quite clumsy. Uh, it did. But, you know, she's come back and said, I'm sorry, I was wrong. And I think that will be seen by many people as the main thing. Of course, lots of people out there should have said that somebody of her prominence and intelligence should never have said something like that in the first place to such a wide audience. And those comments have been repeated and amplified throughout the world. And of course, you know, what she said, you know, previously on the show before she apologised, it does, you know, give amplification. It does give support to some people who like to diminish anti-Semitism as a form of not racism, but as a form of you know, racial intolerance, which again is really diminishing what anti-Semitism is all about. And so to try and counter that, they thought it was important. And so many groups have spoken out, pointing out exactly why she was wrong about what she said. And I think they will, at least on the very basic level, they wish she'd never said it in the first place, but at least she has apologised and not try to fudge it absolutely and say what you know you misunderstood what I was trying to say or you know I was you know she's basically said I was wrong I should have said it was about race when I didn't and I was wrong in that. Lisa thank you very much for bringing us up to date there.
All right, everybody, and unfortunately, more bomb threats coming in at historically black colleges and universities this morning. Uh, we did just get word of two additional schools uh, tweeting that they have received notice of a bomb threat. This is Fort Valley State uh, saying that campus is currently on lockdown. Residential students remain in dorms. Non-residential students and staff should not report to campus until further notice. Campus operations are suspended for the day. Uh, now, this is in addition to the multiple schools that we have gotten word from now. Uh, Xavier University of Louisiana also tweeting alert. They have received a bomb threat and they are working with authorities. Campus will be remote until 12 p.m. today. Residential students should stay in their rooms until further notice. So uh, we've got a list of about seven to eight schools right now. Now, this is just coming in within the last 50 minutes. We open the show at 6 a.m. Uh, with the alerts coming from the two universities in the District of Columbia. So we are going to continue following this situation for you here on Live Now from Fox. Meanwhile, uh, this is in addition to the threats that we saw just yesterday. I do want to stay here in the state of Florida as classes are re resuming at Bethune-Cookman University in just a few hours. Bomb and shooting threats putting the campus on a lock down just yesterday. So we are going to bring into the conversation Fox 35 Orlando's Amanda McKenzie. She is live with the very latest. Amanda, uh, we are getting word of bomb threats at historically black colleges and universities as we speak. Uh, but talk to us about this situation that unfolded yesterday. And just yesterday, there were a total of six threats consisting of bomb threats and shooting threats that were called in to six historically black colleges and universities throughout the country. And that includes the one right here in central Florida at Bethune-Cookman University. Officials say they believe a person is targeting African-American people. Now, two threats were called in around 4 o'clock in the morning yesterday. Chief Jakari Young says a man claiming to be affiliated with a neo-Nazi group claimed there were seven explosives on campus and said there would be an active shooting around lunchtime. Students sheltered in place as the bomb squad went building by building. After five hours of searching, police say no explosives were found. So I feel like it is definitely targeted. I don't know what exactly the message is that they're trying to put out there. Now, Amanda, I do understand that the FBI is actually investigating whether these threats were connected or not, right? That's right. So that is part of their active investigation, given the threats that were called in yesterday and now today. No, the threats that were called in yesterday include Bethune-Cookman University, Bowie State University in suburban Washington, D.C., Howard University in D.C., Albany State University in Georgia, and Southern University Law Center in Baton Rouge, Louisiana, all reported bomb threats. Yeah, and Amanda, like I just said, since 6 o'clock this morning, uh, we have, we're up to about seven or eight schools right now across the nation also reporting these bomb threats. Uh, so we are going to keep uh, in touch with your team here on uh, Live Now from Fox, and thank you so much for bringing us up to speed on what happened yesterday. You take care. Thank you.
All right, everybody. Again, we are monitoring this situation very closely here this morning. Here are some more tweets that are coming in as, again, bomb threats are being reported at several historically black colleges and universities uh, within just the last hour. So I do want to read you uh, all of the schools that we've got here for you. Howard University in Washington, D.C., they also received a threat yesterday and they received a threat in January at the beginning of the month month, like you just heard Amanda McKenzie mention. Uh, also, the University of the District of Columbia, Edward Waters University, right here in front of you. Uh, this is a tweet from them within the last hour, alerting that all in-person activities, classes and operations, including meetings and practices, canceled until further notice. That is in Jacksonville, Florida. Uh, we've also got authorities responding at Spelman College in Atlanta, Georgia, Morgan State University in Baltimore, Maryland, this is actually their tweet that they posted within the last couple of minutes. Uh, then we've got Kentucky State University coming. Uh, that is in Frankfort, Kentucky, and then Xavier University of Louisiana. So uh, very alarming news this morning. Again, this just happening one day after several threats were made at historically black colleges and universities just yesterday, uh, canceling classes, closing campuses. Several of the campuses also placed on lockdown for a period of time. And uh, as you heard Amanda say, the FBI is investigating uh, whether all of these threats were connected. Uh, so it's likely that these threats this morning are going to become a huge part of that ongoing investigation. Some of you are going to see a quick two minute commercial break when you return. We will bring you the latest information we have on these threats this morning once again, as well as some more news that we are following here on this Tuesday, February 1st. Bethune-Cookman University and Edward Waters University in Florida were just two of the 14 HBCUs that have been targeted with bomb threats this week. Both colleges shut down their campuses and canceled classes and activities. BCU board chair Belvin Perry says he feels like history is repeating itself with these threats. Uh, it's reminiscent of, of the days, these threats that we are seeing directed at historical black colleges and universities. Uh, it, it reminds me of the Night Riders. It reminds me of the Klan. The FBI Joint Terrorism Task Force, agents at 20 field offices and local police continue to actively investigate these threats as racially or ethnically motivated violent extremism and hate crimes. Danielle Pryor, WMFE News. I don't want us to lose sight that things are getting better. Each successive generation uh, seems to be making progress in changing attitudes when it comes to race. doesn't mean we're in a post-racial society. It doesn't mean that racism is eliminated. But, you know, when I talk to Malia and Sasha uh, and I listen to their friends and I see them interact, uh, they're better than we are. They're better than we were on these issues. And that's true in every community uh, that I've visited all across the country. Well, uh, a senior law enforcement official is telling us that the FBI has identified six persons of interest in this matter. They're all juveniles. They're all very tech savvy. And they've been disguising how they are making these calls uh, 
more than 20 now over the past month or so uh, to HBCUs across the country. Um, and they appear to have a racist, racist motive, this official is saying, um, which perhaps is obvious because some of these calls, a lot of these calls happened yesterday and the day before on the eve and as, at the start of Black History Month. Uh, again, they're persons of interest. They're not suspects yet. So we are, it's unclear how far the case against them or how, uh, if there's going to be an arrest anytime soon. This is still developing. But I can tell you from talking to a lot of students and administrators at these schools yesterday, they are going to be pleased to see that the FBI is making some progress. They, there's a lot mm -hmm. of concern that uh, they want to see the federal government step up and try to solve this problem. You know, to some, it's been a distraction, but it's, but it's also a huge threat. Some see it as an act of domestic terrorism because these uh, threats have only targeted HBCUs right at the start of Black History Month. Imagine. Ron Allen for us. Thank you, Ron, for bringing that uh, to us. Uh, you said that for... Uh, a good period of time there was I don't want to say stigma but kind of a notion amongst black people that kind of you know we're so strong and you know look how much we survive we don't suffer from you know suicide that's a white people's uh, thing you know black people don't commit suicide <laughs> which kind of helped him you snickering and by, by putting words in your mouth or is this true to your to some degree no 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 I'm snickering because the way that you stated, Gus, makes you laugh because that's exactly what it was. Oh, yeah, folks are saying, oh, no, nah, man, that's suicide. That's a white person thing. Black folks don't kill themselves. They're wrong. Right now at four, we continue to celebrate the life and legacy of former Miss USA and Charlotte native Chesley Crist. She died by suicide on Sunday in New York. LaToya Evans, a spokesperson for the family, joining us now. So, LaToya, first... We have to ask you because, yes, she's a client of yours, but she was also a good friend. How are you doing? It's been a rough few days. Um, you know, I spoke with Chesley just days before her death. Um, in fact, we were even scheduled to have a meeting today. Uh, so it, it's been rough, but um, I'm committed to helping to continue her legacy while she's gone. Um, there's an Instagram post that uh, you put up and we, we have it here. And um, yes, you said in this post, you say that you just spoke with Chesley a couple days before her death. And in it, you say, I could hear her smiling through the phone. And then you recount the time that she came to your house right before the Miss USA competition. And you told her she could have the pick of whatever in your closet. Um, you wrote about her laughter a lot in this. And you said, quote, Chesley was full of laughs and life. And I think this is what's so difficult. This is what's so difficult for people to understand because she seemed to be so full of life, someone who was so happy. But it makes us wonder how could she have been in so much pain? How did how did people miss the signs? Um, and, and as I always say, Carolyn, there were no signs. And that's because Chesley, as bright and intelligent and as beautiful as she was, she never wanted to burden anyone. Um, her gift was her life. And in that, she didn't share the true story of her depression until, unfortunately, very shortly before her death. Um, you know, so there were, again, no signs to really see. Uh, as I talked to family and friends and reflect on my own company's experience, 
there were there were no signs because she didn't want us to see any signs. She didn't want to bother anyone. She didn't want to hurt anyone. Um, and that's just how Chesley was. She wanted to bring joy to everyone that she met. Um, I know that one of the uh, organizations that's near and dear to her heart is Dress for Success. And um, the statements that her, her mother put out yesterday said in lieu of um, any sort of flowers or things like that to donate to this organization. Why was this organization in particular so important to her? I believe Dress for Success was important to her, just like she was the giving person that she was. She wanted everyone to have an opportunity and for everyone to have a shot at success. And particularly when it came to empowering women, that was what Chesley was about. And giving this donation to Dress for Success and having those contributions go there is another way that will continue to honor Chesley's legacy by giving that gift to women. Latoya Evans, thank you so much. Just so sad, so tragic. Um, and it is important that we want to remind you that there is help. There are resources out there. If you or someone you know is struggling, you can always call the National Suicide Prevention Hotline. It is there for you 24 hours every single day. The number is 1-800-273-8255. Context of white supremacy. Gus T. Renegade in for another broadcast. Black mental health. Very important. Dr. Francis Cress Welsing, third generation physician general and child psychiatrist. She used to say, you cannot be a victim of white supremacy and qualify for mental health, period. Not possible. You are totally disqualified if you're subject to racism, to having any sort of mental, emotional, financial well-being, any otherwise, physical, any plane. Uh, super important, especially with the last two years of anxiety and confusion that everyone on the planet has been experiencing. That on top of the white supremacy racism. Lots of folks. It has been a very challenging time. Uh, definitely speak up, I think, uh, towards the end of 2021. B in Toronto wrote in, was telling us she was having a tough time and feeling depressed because of white supremacy in the workplace, like many, 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 many of us. <clears throat> but reaching out to let people know so that she could get support. People can let her know that they are concerned and, you know, let us know what you need. That is so critically important. And uh, I know so many black people, myself included, have said, man, this system ends up having you kind of isolated where you kind of are restricted in terms of the people that you have access to, that you can talk to that, you know, are not hostile and combative. It's going to be conflict, uh, especially if you might need to discuss white supremacy racism as a component of your mental health. Oh, Dr. Welsing used to emphasize, hey, you come and sit on my couch, hang out with me for an hour or two hours or however long the session is going to be. This is not going to conclude, even though I am a medical doctor and can write a prescription for some Zoloft or whatever it is. I could do that. But what you really need, what she said all the time, the job 
of the psychiatrist is to help their patient accept reality even when they are hesitant to do so. No greater reality than the system of white supremacy, but I thought that was horrendous. Uh, Chesley Christ, uh, lovely, talented, intelligent, so many things. She could have helped Andre imagine she could have got Dr. Welsing's book. Decide I'm going to devote some of my time and energy to dealing with racism, white supremacy. Black mental health. Uh, speak up if you are feeling down or whatever the case may be and uh, try to just be receptive, help out uh, and ask even, you know, sometimes that's not that is nothing. Anybody wants to come and chat and oh, let me tell you how bummed and sad I am feeling. Woe is me, especially in a system where black people like there is not a whole lot of empathy for any person classified as black generally under any circumstances you've seen it right something happens with racism even if you get shot and killed by the police it'll be eh he have his pants hanging off his behind hmm I don't know <laughs> so hey I totally get it like it's not a whole lot of sympathy and frequently you're not even expecting a sympathetic ear someone to be responsive to your concerns try to be empathetic and even ask reach out if it seems like you know someone is not quite their same self and you know they seem you know maybe a little irritated whatever the case may be just not themselves the way that you're accustomed to check in privately maybe you can send them a message give them a call whatever it is just check in see how they are doing uh as she stated a lot of folks they might even go to great lengths to conceal that they are feeling down and you know having some suicidal thoughts to not let you know until it's too late so ask you don't have to be you know super snooping in their business but just inquire with sympathy anywho black mental health Uh, again gusty renegade the black O.J. Simpson. I said, I'm make sure I say that today specifically after the report on Amir Locke when they were giving the details about the no knock raid in Minneapolis. They're not even going for the warrant for Mr. Locke. He's in the residence of someone else. Now, I know Dr. Kanban talked about that too. be mindful of your friends and who you're hanging out with and all that. You don't want to be wrong place, wrong time because of them. But they're not even there for Mr. Locke. They're for somebody else. Breaking. And he's dead. Then they go. Now they say, hey, now the person, this is a bad dude. Oh, let me tell you what a bad dude this guy is. Oh. We had him in custody before. He threatened to rape all of the police officers' families. Like every day. Every day. Anthony Broadwater. Brownsville 5, I think it was. Central Park 5. Every day. Wildin'. Every day. Black male rapists. They're just out to rape everybody, everything in the known universe. Not even just going to rape you. Rape your whole family. got raping tendencies that's what they said neutralizing workplace yesterday said that, talking about the children you got to watch him you got to see he makes the children makes the little girls uncomfortable you got to watch see 
raping tendencies. They've been developing that since kindergarten. Time they're grown. That's right. They rape your whole family. Compensatory call in. Dial in if you have thoughts, comments, observations to share. The number 720-716-7300. The code 564-943-POUND. Press star 61 if you would like to participate. Went back and watched Willie Horton's commercial. Not the baseball player. The black rapist. 1988 presidential campaign Willie Horton raping black male. Number again 720-716-7300 The code 564-943-POUND Press star 61 if you would like to participate. Speaking of raping black males uh, we will be here on Monday. Our guest Aya Gruber will be talking about her book. Uh, I could pull it out. Give me a minute. But uh, the role of the women's liberation movement in mass incarceration. One problem I have with this book is the specific title. It's the role, the unexpected. That's it. The word unexpected role of women's liberation in mass incarceration yeah there we go here we go so it's the feminist war on crime the unexpected role of women's liberation in mass incarceration like uh there is no component if we're talking about locking up black males like anthony broadwater willie horton the central park five oj simpson Gus T. Renegade, Kwame Kilpatrick, Jesse Jackson Jr. Tired. Uh, If that's none of that is unexpected, accidental, all of that is planned, rehearsed. We've been plotting this since kindergarten. When I contacted Aya Gruber, I told her, I said, man, when they talk about the school to prison pipeline, White women, hey, we can start from kindergarten and just walk this all the way through. And she said she didn't study the school aspect and blah, 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 Yeah, 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 yeah. Nothing about this here is unexpected, especially when it comes to plotting, conniving white women. I don't even know if Aya Gruber is classified as white or not white. I think she said in the text that she's non-white, but I mean, man. You can look at her photograph. She will never, ever, ever be confused with Lupita Nyong'o, Nina Simone. Monday, 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific. Only reason we're reading this, she talks exactly about, hey, it was deliberate. We got to lock them up. You put your hands on a female first time, last time. But you put your hands on a female, you're going to jail. Anthony Broadwater. They already knew what this means. The people that are going to jail, it's not going to be Jeffrey Epstein. It's going to be Anthony Broadwater. And then maybe 40 years later, we find out, whoops, and she talks about this exactly like punitive actions, locking people up and having them registered as a sex offender like Anthony Broadwater for 40 years, registered as a sex offender. And then whoops, my my bad. 
guess you you didn't do that one. But you you probably would have raped five or six people if you had been out. So it's probably on balance everything worked out. Don't rape anybody by the, now that you're exonerated. Keep your zipper up. Raping black males. Monday, 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific. <sighs> Few quick notes, then we will get to the callers. Uh, let's see. Pre, please, as I just said, lots of folks, Gus T included, are very stressed. It has been a very difficult few years if it's been great if you invested in like hand sanitizer or whatever it is if you sold all of your airline stocks in like february of 2020 you sold all your airbnb stock february 2020 you invested in zoom january 2020 well bravo for you and hook us up you can inform us next time around so that we can do the same if it's been great two years for you awesome for many of us, it has not been. In that spirit, when you reach out, being sympathetic to other folks, check on them if they seem like they're having a tough time. But man, this should not be contacting people for conflict. I think Gus T has been pretty explicit in terms of my views, white supremacy, racism. Baker's dozen, as they say, 13 years. My definition, we give it out every time we, give, we have a guest on the program be there live and direct on Monday evening to have people seek me out on social media and other platforms to like boldly let me know hey Gus T I just want to let you know I do think that non-white people practice racism mm. they don't have anything else to say they don't have a link for like a smoothie recipe string bean casserole interesting book to read nothing I just want to let you know mm, I don't agree mm. victims guaranteed qualified but for real for real please do not contact me for any reason if it's just to say I don't agree particularly if it's I think non-white people can practice white supremacy VGQ, get on your platform, make a blog, a podcast, a book, a documentary. But to have this happen like over and over, they get my email and that's what you need to email me about. I don't even care if it's Gus T could be wrong. I've admitted that many, many times. So let's even take that route. Maybe Gus is wrong in how he's conceptualized all this. What to do is not invest time social media contacting me DMing me emailing me ah, you're wrong and all that. <laughs> get to work there are probably going to be a lot of idiots like Gus T who don't agree with your views just get to work you certainly can't waste your time just going around and fussing and yammering and contacting messaging all of the people who don't agree with you right because I don't do that I don't do any of that on social media I don't contact. I don't even really contact people that I agree with on social media. I'll just forward, share that sort of thing. I do not go on posting and commenting. United, independent. If I have something to say, I say it. I don't tag and write on other people's wall and all of that, which I think is extra lame. Anyway, you can't even verify if these people are classified as white. Much less to be going and. Woo, 
Invest your time and energy in the best way possible, not picking cyber fights. Certainly not contacting other victims of racism who have a different view than yours. Lots of that, especially I guess people have more time to sit around and fiddle and racism has been talked about. People that don't contact me, for, and I mean for nothing, uh, just to contact, to disagree about something. The height, in my opinion, of non-constructive behavior. The reports. Uh, let's see. They gave the report on black people. Now, they didn't say black and brown people. They didn't say people of color. They didn't say minorities or any of those other niggardly terms. They said black people specifically. The niggers, y'all are fixing to catch the triple whammy. Now, I think the information is important, but I'm just like, man, are we really being serious about this? Like, I do not associate like serious talk with the whammy. Like in any way, shape, form, like I guess the game show is cute or what have you if you're into all that. But I mean, wow, like you got all this talk about affordable housing and all the rest of the crises. And then they're about to be stuck in all of these areas that are super vulnerable to flooding for a variety of reasons. <laughs> you niggers are fixing to get the triple whammy. Mm hmm. Always in the whammy group. Again, same thing that I said way back in 2010 when Mr. Fuller said, <laughs> talking about black people being in the double whammy group. If we got to be catching all the double and quadruple whammies, then that should just be made explicit as opposed to all the black and brown and people of color and all the rest. Just make it explicit. There's a triple and double whammy group. And then we have the rest of the non-white people. Uh, let's see. When they did the report uh, that was from CBC, so-called foreign news outlet, they did the report and they were talking about maternal uh, deaths, uh, black mothers in specifically uh, passing away during uh, child labor. We've talked about that for years. Uh, I myself started saying sometimes circa 2017, give or take a year or so, like hmm, this is being talked about quite a bit in like mainstream outlets, even CBC, international outlets. But New York Times and Washington Post, MSNBC, NPR, like all the time. So why are they? I already said today, a racist man, racist woman, racist child. They don't care about black people, any of them, pregnant moms either. So why are they talking about this? They, in fact, could just go solve the problem. They wouldn't have to keep talking about this over and over and over for five years. They could have already passed the programs and been done with all this. They have that sort of ability. So why do they keep talking about all this? And some people have reported, even on this platform, they don't think that that information is true. They think that that's a lie. Racist man, racist woman, primary tactic, they lie. Some folks uh, have said, hey, uh, we think that they're doing this just to cause... Uh, black people and black moms uh, expecting black mothers specifically uh, to cause them stress, to have them unnecessarily worried that, you know, there's going to be some sort of a problem for them or their baby or, you know, whatever it is. Uh, I can only say 
all of the medical professionals that I've spoken with, Emmy included, who's in med school, have unwaveringly, unanimously said, oh, yeah, that's accurate. On a personal level, Gusty doesn't have children. However, I have been present uh, for a black mom uh, who gave birth two different times. I was there at the birthing center for one and everything. I can say she specifically did have serious medical complications going through. Uh, I've seen that directly. Lost a lot of weight. Major concerns about her health and well-being going through the whole process. Very stressed. Experienced racism. You already know the cause. But direct evidence. Logic. Medical apartheid. All the information I've seen. All of the black medical uh, professionals that I've spoken to have concurred well i can see why that would be the case anywho within that report you start off and you say that you know black mom pregnant black mothers wow it's really you know something we've got to address something's got to be done about this make sure that they're healthy and child is healthy bravo on all accounts breastfeeding too bravo you get through this whole report you mention intersectionality they try to get like nuance and tell us there's a difference between health disparities and health inequities. You get into intersectionality, class, and underserved communities. I mentioned niggardly terms before. That's one right there. Marginalized and underserved communities. I'd rather be called a nigger than an underserved citizen or community member. You get through this whole big long report and no one says racism. That is the root of all of this. Talk about pregnant black moms, the father of gynecology, J. Marion Sims. We got to saw put this in the rubric of underserved communities. That's who he was torturing and experimenting on underserved communities. That sort of thing in my at least for Gus T. It would suggest that we're not really serious about solving this problem the people in charge at cbc to have a segment like that even the way that we have to talk about it in that sort of way that we can't be direct about what's causing the problem why we need to get this assistance to these black moms asap uh let's see they spoke with Marilyn Mosby, black female, attempted mother, attorney, Baltimore, Maryland, uh, and all of these charges that she's facing for alleged uh, abuse of the CARES Act and uh, taking money out of her 401k to buy this residence and then rent it out and not being truthful and recording all this information uh, and what have you. They said that allegedly enforcement officers were threatening her children threatening her husband we're gonna kill your husband no one's gonna respond in terms of enforcement officers and I thought wow like maybe she's exaggerating you know maybe she's making all that up that's you know that can't be then I started now wait a minute now I just read from David Dinkins autobiography where he was talking about just trying to get a no count a citizen complaint review board assembled in New York that is toothless and lame. I won't say toothless, ineffective. They do not have the authority to do much of anything with regards to disciplining anyone from NYPD. So he was Mayor Dinkins way back when trying to do the little bit that he can as a black male victim uh, as mayor and he described vividly 
racist mobs who happen to be enforcement officers with a badge going out harassing black citizens, nigga this, nigga that, on camera, don't care, threatening <laughs> violence against black people. I said, oh yeah, I can see that. I believe that. She went trying to prosecute them for Freddie Gray and all that. They burned the CBS down. Oh yeah, I, can I said that before. I said, man, these are, I said that in fact when we had John Tufel on the program, I said, man, they got iced tea on the Cheerios box. How is that? He did cop killers. Race soldiers have a very long memory. I'm surprised. I said, how is it that they don't have the Cheerios honeybee hand in hand with like Mark Furman? We are not buying anything from General Mills. You will not see a Cheerio in this house. You know, it'll be a cold day in Florida before you see another Cheerio in this house. Who's with me? Ice tea is like what? Long memory. So. Maryland, that's like recent calculus. I guess maybe that's long enough. People forgot different generation. Eh. Uh, but Maryland, Moses, that's recent. We got Twitter that, you know, that just happened. Like, oh, yeah, I could totally see retribution big time for all of that. Have to keep an eye on how that proceeds. Maybe she did something incorrect. Don't know. I certainly. Yeah, I won't even get all that. Maybe she did something incorrect. We'll have to see. Looking forward to more information. Uh, let's see. Man, when they gave the report, oh, I guess that's one right there because that was Marilyn Mosby speaking to Joy Reid. I think Joy Reid, either she or her parents, not born in the U.S., so that might be one. Folks want to go on their tirade and, you know, BGQ. Problem remains white people. Uh, They gave the report Volusia County, Richard Burnham race soldier reminded me of retired firefighter's son he just said uh, I think it was the beginning of the year he said his offspring and his buddy they were going out to, to work out they were coming back I think he said 1130 something close in there and uh, tire get a flat tire uh, him being hey I'm going to be a great attempted dad best I can be go help him out get a little roadside assistance Sit just as he's getting there some race soldier what are you doing around here getting all aggressive and he said they tell him like, man this guy's got a gun he calls the police and the guy rolls off and we're like, whoa, who knows what <laughs> those sort of things happen all the time. Just some random race soldier. Rather, oh, nigga broke down. Pow. Looked like he was going to rape my family. Volusia County, Richard Burnham. One thing I thought of immediately, two times for Dr. Cambon, KamalCambon.org. He talked about repeatedly being out at night, late this was in the evening. Same thing I said, retired firefighter. Nothing good happens late in the evening. Nothing. These sort of incidents are right. And also the alcohol factor. Now, I don't I didn't hear any evidence that they were under the influence. Seems like they were sober. Bravo. However, just because you're sober doesn't mean all the other people that are on the road and around you doesn't mean that they're going to be sober. This white man was going to purchase alcohol. I suspect it's probably because he already drank everything he had. I've been saying for about two years, when you're out and about, this is not a time for verbal confrontations. Haven't I been saying that like an idiot for two years? I normally say that about the same time that I say sobriety would be best. I said, I think a few times, maybe once or twice, because I probably said that about mm, 300 times or more now. Talk. And tell your children that someone just emailed me and said, hey, Gus, you remember when Dr. Welsing, she talked about 
uh, having a conference where black males get together, say, I'm afraid of white people. I'm afraid of white people. Do you remember that? Do you talk about that? And I said, yeah, I do remember that. She talked about that on the program like 10 years ago. I said, also, I started asking black people when they would call into the program. I say, hey, are you afraid of white people? And you talk about show off ism like woo, we got a number of them in the archives. You can go back and listen. Wow. Afraid of a white. <laughs> I don't know what type of coon you is, Gus. I'm not afraid of no man. White, black, purple, polka dot. They break into that metaphor. But I mean, wow, I'm about the toughest guy in the history of the world. Is it King Kong ain't got nothing on me, much less a white man? Oh. And that's what I got every time. I never heard anyone say that they're afraid of a white person. I remember when Irie and retired firefighter, they said they talked to young people and they said, hey, what would you do if you stopped by a police officer? Badger, no. What would you do if you stopped by a police officer? And they said they got interesting responses. I think one said they got some comical responses. And I know that no one said that they got logical responses i don't think anybody said i am afraid of white people if a random white man comes up to me and is yelling at me and fussing at me cut the music now rejoin on here let's go there's nothing to talk about i'm not let's go right now you can write his information down as we're leaving there's nothing to talk about like we're leaving immediately we are in danger nobody said that that's not the response that they gave that's not what we heard in Volusia County. Gambling with your life instead of a pipe could have been an assault rifle, could have been a Kyle Rittenhouse. I think they even made a documentary about this, didn't they? Isn't that Jordan Davis? They made a whole tacky jo- documentary uh, about that, right? Same exact scenario. Loud music at the gas station, right? Drake this, Drake that, rah, 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 and turn it now, bang, bang, bang. I thought, don't they say that? That's cliche, right? The talk. No, we do not talk to our children about racism. Seven Bridges mom said that. Cal's investor just emailed me that this week. Like, man, we come up with a lot of different reasons to not talk to our children about racism. I'm not a parent. All I can say is, hey, that could be your child. Retired firefighter just told you that could be your offspring instead of a pipe. It could be an assault rifle. Not a good time for squabbling and arguing with strangers. Exit. Probably hear that one one more time before we conclude today. White people permitting. Let's see. Put in one more. Uh, I already mentioned rapist. The black male rapist. The bane of everything. Hmm. Uh, Black mental health. I guess I'll get that was much I could say about lots of this. Uh, the Chesley Christ man uh, again. Uh, t- talk about racism. Like that's the impact in so many different ways. At least in my opinion, you see all of this in addition to all of the daily abuse that you encounter. And I don't know Chelsea uh, Chesley Christ. Excuse me. Gorgeous. So I'm sure she got all. I talked about it for. Uh, neutralizing workplace racism she was winning competitions and things that normally were reserved for white women so I can't imagine the amount of vitriol that she got from her white women 
appears. I don't know. I don't have any history or detail. Maybe, you know, that information will come down later. But that would be my suspicion. You are fit. You look like you're not eating Cheetos all the time. That you take care of yourself. You're drinking water. Not all those chemicals and what have you. Get some exercise in. Maybe a little yoga. You're healthy. Taking care of yourself. Got some black self-respect. Oh, man. Ugh. Ugh. Bane of racists exists. Think all day long about how we can tear you down. I don't know. That's just my suspicion. As a black female victim of white supremacy, I could be wrong. I will say again, though, black mental health. Uh, Dr. Welsing, grandsister, she said, hey, I don't care what accomplishments you have. If you become president of the United States and all the pageants and things that she won, how much money you accumulate, whatever title you have. Hey, you are still a victim subject of racist man, racist woman, racist child. You are disqualified from black mental health. One of the reasons that we should take this problem very seriously in solving this problem very seriously and make time for mental health talking about how you're feeling how you're doing upset depressed sleep comes in big there too man when you are not getting adequate uh, rest that can have such an impact on your well-being mental health all the rest of it so make sure you're getting adequate sleep as well watching the intake of white sugar and alcohol too those are things you probably want to minimize If you're trying to get your mental health up, feeling a little down, frustrated. Anywho, number again, 720-716-7300. Decode 564-943-POUND. Press star 61 if you would like to participate. Uh, If you could take about five minutes to share your thoughts, views, observations, uh, that would be grand. If you have additional thoughts to share, uh, just make sure everyone has spoken at least once and then you can return. Give us your additional thoughts, questions, what have you. Uh, If you know you are in a noisy environment, uh, if you could use your mute button, that would be super appreciated uh, just to make sure that we don't have to compete with a lot of unnecessary background noise uh, much obliged uh, also for this one broadcast uh, if we could refrain from using metaphors uh, that would be super appreciated uh, they get us every week uh, with the metaphors and what have you uh, just the one I'll pick out for this week uh, when they were talking about Whoopi Goldberg maybe I'll chat about that later when they were talking the segment on the BBC about Whoopi Goldberg victim cowbell too I guess uh, and They said, you know, she came out, she gave her apology, and she didn't fudge. She didn't lie. Fudge. Why does fudge mean to not be honest, to lie, and some form of chocolate? No metaphors almost sounded like delectable Negro. Uh, 
Met race soldiers, they do things like that to cause deception deliberately. Victims, Gusty included, we are still learning. Sometimes we don't have logic to articulate our views, so we will substitute an analogy, metaphor of some sort. Frequently, that just adds a lot more confusion. And at minimum, we will need a lot of details and precision to solve this problem. Analogies, similes, and metaphors is not going to solve the problem not even close let's see uh, 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 720 7167300 decode 564943 pound press star 61 if you would like to participate again listener supported counter racist radio invest if you think the program is constructive Visit the blog racism-notes.blogspot.com racism-notes.blogspot.com Listener supported counter racist radio PayPal button is in the top right corner directly beneath the button you will see links for PayPal Venmo and cash app uh, the cash app address cash dot app forward slash dollar sign the cows uh, enormous thanks to all the folks who have invo- uh, invested, supported us uh, for 13 years. Hopefully we have been more constructive than not. Uh, hopefully folks have got some accurate information on what racism, white supremacy is, how it works, things we can do to solve this problem immediately. Uh, let's see. First few folks who dialed in with a hand up. Uh, if you have commentary to share, line should be open. Proceed. Hello, may I be heard? Uh, greetings, Irie. Hotepka. And um, hello to everybody on the line and people that are going to listen um, to this. Ah, it's been a difficult week on the plantation. Um, uh, thinking of the lady, uh, rest of soul, that committed suicide, you know, it's uh, funny, too, that I'm sure people aren't saying that um, colorism did not uh, spare her from wanting to commit suicide and it didn't spare her from being a victim of racism, white supremacy, um, you know, because there's a whole whole lot of talk about that. And, you know, this is a black female, so I wonder if people that normally derive, I'm sorry, I'm getting tongue twisted, a little tired. People that normally um, degrade and put down non-white females who are so-called light-skinned. I wonder if they're going to advocate for this lady um, in her moment of uh, earthly finality. Um, I wanted to say, I don't, I think we can't solve the problem of racism, white supremacy, if we're constantly looking for uh, reward feedbacks from uh, our devices. Because these devices on a metaphysical level are messing with, you know, our, our spirit and our minds. And I'm not trying to use the metaphor. It's literally changing the, the frequency of light, you know, that emits from most people's phones unless they change the settings. 
It's tricking your brain into thinking it's day when it's night. And then we're watching things that cause uh, dopamine um, levels to fluctuate, um, most of which is conflictual, most of which, um, uh, how do you say, uh, reinforces all the um, attributes and values uh, embedded into our mind side of system of racism and white supremacy. And I suspect that that's why it's easy for non-white people to attack you in messages, in um, posts, because this is a performance-oriented type of confusion that we're in. And to <laughs> orientate performance, there has to be programming. And <laughs> it's so funny because I tell this to people and they, they think I'm wild. They think I have literally lost every bit of of good, like logic. They think I'm illogical. Um, speaking of illogic, I need someone to tell me if there has to be a group of people involved in a plan to make it a conspiracy because I've heard a suspected racist and I actually sent you the video about his book, maybe not this next time, but maybe right after because it reminded me of Countdown except it was for mental health. But anyway, I heard this suspected racist say that just because some companies decided to lie about the seriousness of cigarettes and other food additives doesn't make it a conspiracy because it was a conglomerate of corporations. I was like, wait a minute, doesn't the federal government and other law enforcement agencies charge singular people with conspiracy, conspiracy to whatever? So I was like, maybe I need to ask and get my profile updated. Um, the, the threatening of, um, violence to the HBCUs, you know, I just noticed across the board, and I'll end with this, emergency plans are not really implemented outside of school. I didn't see any fire drills done at the high schools that I worked at um, when I was teaching. They stopped mostly at middle school. After that, would you say the... <laughs> The foreman, the metaphor they use about the the black foreman and the other one says, no, I call it quitting time. It's they getting the kids used to the plantation style, get, get in the saddle, you know, or that's a metaphor, sorry, get to work, you know, and there's no interruption. They don't even want them to be in the mindset of like even some emergency preparedness. So with that said, I really wonder how they prepare people even mentally like what do they do here has a manual in case we have an active shooter or a bombing like what do you do if there actually is this happening here's the manual because again there's no emergency plans and drills outside of middle school my experience you know oh, thank you for bearing with me you probably hear i'm a little shaken up um, yeah, just, you know, pray for us, my family, if you're praying people, unless you pray to Lucifer. Thank you so much, and uh, I'll meet my line. From the wilds of uh, Louisiana, Irie, much obliged, um, definitely 
Um, as I said, it's been challenging for lots and lots of us. So yes, we will definitely lots of constructive energy uh, coming your way. Uh, my understanding of a conspiracy is the same as with racism, white supremacy, which is the conspiracy in the known universe. Uh, you can't have a conspiracy without people. Same way that I say you can't have a system without uh, people. Uh, you can't have a conglomerate without people. That just means it's a lot of people uh, that were involved in this deception about cigarettes or whatever else it is. And that's staying that in, at least in my opinion, that's the same way that I talk about metaphors uh, because racist they do that with racism that's a beautiful way of diffusing responsibility where you just keep having all of these metaphors as opposed to wait a minute racism is not out there it's not nebulous it was not some conglomerate with it no a group of white people sat down they didn't fudge they decided we're gonna lie about cigarettes make it plain now we can understand what happened and you can probably get names because they got documents all that you can go get names to some of these white people that are paying money right now rep uh you call that reparations or what have you for all the tobacco ills and what have you and throat cancer and all the rest of it but that is standard operating procedure white people to shirk accountability responsibility particularly for racism white supremacy principally for that but it ends up happening all kinds of crimes uh, as you stated uh and with the metaphors I was glad that you explained in the saddle because I didn't know what that meant. Like, oh, okay. And then she said, like, get back to work. Like, now I even thought that that's interesting for a classroom context. Like, man, uh, I didn't know what it meant. <laughs> like, I didn't have an idea. Of, like, what? What are you talking about? So if I'm whatever, uh, 10, 12, 13, 14, 9, 8. Uh, I'm pretty sure if I'm in New Orleans or wherever else, I probably have not done a lot of horse riding. So I probably don't know what you're talking about either. Like, I'm not up on my John Wayne flicks if I'm 10, 9, whatever. Like, what do I know about horseback riding and saddles? Like, uh, yes. Uh, let's see. Uh, and the, uh, now that's interesting because the time that I worked in the school system, now I was in California we did earthquake drills which i found stunning because i was on the east coast going to school we didn't do earthquake we did the fire drills and all that stuff we did fire drills the whole way through high school all the way up uh but they did earthquake drills and they did them high school students everybody had to do them they took them pretty serious like this is where you're supposed to go and this is what happens blah 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 if it's a fire you just do this but if it's earthquake like so I don't know. I guess it depends on where you are. I guess California, like uh, East Bay area, like I think most people at least remember the one from like the late 80s or what have you. So I guess that's recent enough that they take earthquakes pretty serious in California. So uh, I guess other folks, you can let us know about the do they take fire drills seriously past? She said middle school, I think is where it stops at. And after that is this kind of. Yeah, you know, we'll get to, we get to a type of, in this environment where HBCUs are being threatened every day since Black History Month. Uh, I guess you can let us know that, too. Uh, much obliged again, Irie in Louisiana. Uh, other folks who dialed in with a hand up line should be open. Proceed. Can I be heard? Bay Area mom. Yes, ma'am. Um, Oh, that's 
sounds like you're a little bit distant from the phone. Uh, if you could maybe get closer or turn the volume up. I'm fine. Can you hear me now? Much better. Ah, I have it. Thank you. Um, fire drills. Uh, da, 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 da. No. And I went to school in um, California, both sides, uh, L.A. and L.A. I don't, L.A. took the fire drills more serious. Well, I won't say more serious, but I had a lot of fire drills going to um, Los Angeles Unified Schools um, when I came to these schools. Uh, we didn't. I don't ever remember doing a fire drill in junior high or high school here. Um, and even with the children. Um, that I work with now working in these schools. We just, they just did one last month to try to show the children <laughs> where to go, what to do. They had it all mapped out, I guess, however, where you where go. But the drills that they do now are those drop drills um, instead of the fire drills. That's what's um, important right now, not um, the fire drill. But they did do a trial run recently. Um, your calls. Uh, da, 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 da. the uh, low housing oh, so it's not low housing but that's what it seems like because when you played the clip uh, what was it uh, week four um, it made me think how do you how do you give somebody section A or low it's not even section A you're giving them housing it's just low housing if you make enough income so if you don't make enough income, you don't even qualify, and then to top it off, it's a lottery. So <laughs> even if you do make the top of the list 100, out of those 100 that made the top of the list, you got to put your name in the wheel and spin it and hope your name gets pulled. Uh, and God forbid you have something bad on your credit, you might not get it. It's crazy. So I just thought that was kind of chicken stuff. Well, chicken stuff is the next one. I thought that was not right. To do it like that, uh, what was that, 1959? And then now, all of a sudden, you oh, okay, let's help them out. Maybe a little, perhaps. That's how I took the, the clips. Um, that was good information, though. What else should we talk about? Um, all the children at the uh, gas station, that were, well, I don't even know what they were doing. It just seems like they were just being young at the gas station and the guy that was agitated with him and went in there and bought his beer, probably was already drinking, and then came out and messed up their car and then called them all those names and then scared them and did scared them and then when they go get on go wherever they're going, you're following them. And then when the um when you do get arrested, it's like, Oh wait, they I got shot with this air gun. Liar! They always lie. It's crazy. Why would you lie? And um, just the social um, stress that black people are under that we don't talk about. That that's yeah. I I, I think that has a lot to do with our our health as well. Um, particularly mine. So um, I think. That is 
Uh, follow them. Uh, yeah, I think that's it. Um, oh, the black colleges. Oh, the, the children, the black children in college that would get the phone threats. I thought that was uh, expected. I, I feel some kind of way. I hope um, they don't actually start acting on the threats. Uh, it's creepy. Ah, that that bothered me just to know that that's what they're doing, terrorizing the children and scaring them. Even if you're not going to do it, it's so frightening. And then you have to stand still for five hours to check and see if this is happening or if there are bombs since you're calling in these bomb threats. It's, uh, that, that, yeah, that, that was a bother. Uh, and then the suicide, the, the lady that committed suicide, that, I, I think a lot of people, especially after this pandemic or, you know, since um, 2020 when we were, you know, had to stay in the house and couldn't do anything and everybody was confused and scared, I could see. And then all the issues that we have and then all the things we endure, I guess I could see it. It's just sad. I, I hate that it, it happens. I wish people would talk to people or talk to someone or try to get some kind of um, assistance mentally. And that's all. I'll leave my line, and thanks for taking my call. Much obliged, Bay Area mom. Number again is 720-716-7300. The code 564-943-POUND. Press star six one if you would like to participate. Um, the HBCU situation, that would just be another illustration of in terms of not qualifying for black mental health. Now, I'm a college student. Let's even say that you, you don't have any struggles with tuition. You're not taking a super like uh, 18 credit hours, 21 credit hours. You're not doing any crazy course load. You're not taking all of your super hard classes. You're just having a normal semester quarter whatever it is you can't even get off to a great start to the new semester or new quarter all this nonsense like do what we gotta what you, leave and go where well, you got covid situation in some places i mean leave and go where maybe you can leave and go someplace maybe you can't you know they got crazy hours and all the rest some of the campuses were virtual you know things aren't don't have the normal hours and and access so i mean black mental health under attack at all times and absolutely hopefully they will not carry out uh, on any of these threats and hey they just did all that talking about domestic terrorism there you go right there get to it more of that where it came from uh, let's see other folks who dialed in with a hand up if we have missed you totally Line should be open. Proceed. Can I be heard? Yes, sir. All right. Uh, greetings, Justin. Uh, greetings to all the callers and listeners. Um, Jason Van Dyke. Um, <laughs> that's uh, he uh, was released after serving three years after uh, the rape soldier who was convicted of murdering. Uh, Laquan McDonald here in Chicago. Uh, he was technically he was supposed to serve six years, but he got off um, three years with 
quote unquote good behavior. Now, what's interesting is uh, during his time, uh, during his three years in prison, and and needless to say that uh, it took longer to convict him than he served the sentence. So during his three years in prison, uh, he was uh, afforded a lot of secrecy. Um, I think within this first year, he got transported to a uh, federal facility in Connecticut uh, because they feared that uh, uh, something uh, there was a threat on his life. Uh, he was also transported to another prison in downstate Illinois, which his location was undisclosed. But they said that it was because of the fact that he was a high-profile case. And matter of fact, with quote-unquote high-profile uh, inmates, uh, their names are not on the Illinois uh, Illinois uh, Board of Corrections uh, website like the other prisoners are. And they said that it, they do that for, you know, uh, people like him. But uh, I can specifically remember there were, you know, uh, so-called uh, high-profile uh, gangbangers uh, in, re in regards to the gangster disciples and the vice lords uh, 20 years ago, and I remember seeing their names and their locations uh, on the Illinois Correction uh, uh, website. Uh, what's so interesting is Derek Chauvin, Derek Chauvin's name and location of his, uh, where he's at in Minnesota is readily available on the Minnesota's uh, uh, Correction uh, website. So I thought that was pretty interesting. And uh, a lot of uh, a lot of uh, uh, protests going on here in Chicago. Now, what's interesting is the NAACP is, uh, you know, uh, uh, trying to call the Justice Department, uh, in particular the the uh, uh, Merrick Garland, who is the uh, U U.S. Uh, U.S. Attorney, to I guess do something about you know federally for uh, Jason Van Dyke, which I don't think anything is going to happen. But what's interesting is I contrast that to the Marilyn Mosby suits who, uh, you know, they can, you know, they can easily uh, draw federal charges against her uh, in a split second. But, you know, for cop killers, you know, not, uh, <laughs> no, nothing there for cop killers. Uh, I mean, not cop killers. I'm sorry. Uh, race soldiers. Uh, Matter of fact, speaking of cop killers, uh, Illinois is trying to pass a law uh, to implement the death penalty to cop killers now, even though Illinois is a state that has banned the, uh, the death penalty for, I think it's been 30, no, it's been 40 years now. So, yeah, so Illinois, Illinois has banned the death penalty, but they're trying to bring back uh, the death penalty for people who kill cops. So... Uh, that is where we are at in Illinois. But uh, that's all I have on me in my life. Abraham Lincoln is rolling over in his grave. Like, wow. Looked like they were at least giving, uh, talking about getting rid of the death penalty. Henry in Chicago, much obliged, sir. Uh, talking about getting rid of the death penalty in many parts of the world. And Illinois, they want to bring it back. And bring it back specifically for cop killers. Hmm. Name it after Fred Hampton, I guess. Uh, no knock raid. 
Fred Hampton. That was the first thing I thought of when they were talking about all that for uh, Amir Locke. Fred Hampton, 1969. Uh, man, I, it would be difficult. Like, it'd have to be like my mom, Mr. Fuller. Like, if we all lived in Chicago, it's 21 degrees Fahrenheit in Chicago right now. The hot for tomorrow is supposed to be 34. 17 degrees low tomorrow, Sunday. Mr. Fuller, they did something. They roughed him up. John Burge and, you know, CPD. My mom, and they say, we're going to protest, Gus. Are you coming to join us? Look down. 21 degrees. Mm. You all going to have it on Zoom? I do not do cold weather well at all. I've said for years, like, it's no, the only times I've been to Chicago, it was late spring and summer, and it was cold then. I could not imagine being outside protesting about racism or anything else, and it's 21 degrees. And it was 21 degrees here a few weeks ago. I said, my brain felt like it wasn't even working correctly. Like, I was miserable, even when I was in the house, <laughs> like, with the heat on, blankets. Even then, I was super cold, so... Woo. Those are some dedicated attempted counter racists uh, out braving the cold to protest racism. Like, yeah, Gus would for sure be a coward. Um, he said it took longer to convict Mr. Van Dyke than the amount of time he actually served. Wow. Not that I'm surprised. They generally don't serve any time. So, I mean, hey, I guess one could say, hey, take what you can get. Tacky phrase. Um, but wow, that is. Uh, wow. <laughs> right on. That is that is what domination looks like. And all the privacy to boot. That's that's just like at the hands of persons unknown. Right. Like where's Jason? We don't know. We don't know. It's for safety. You know, it's dangerous times out there. Uh, let's see. Much obliged, Henry in Chicago. Uh, other folks dialed in with a hand up. Greetings, everyone. Greetings, retired firefighter in Florida. How far is Volusia County from where you are? Is that close or no? Uh, I'm forgetting actually where Volusia County is at. Uh, uh, I know it's the only thing I know is north, <laughs> north of me. I have to think about that, uh, Volusia County. I'm not sure on uh, exactly where where it is. Oh, that's Eastern Central had to get the map here. That's one thing that I would love. Like, yeah. man, if whew. name me, name me a name me a city. Daytona Beach. Oh, oh, oh. Okay, uh, it's uh, it's about uh, hmm, it's about uh, a maybe a uh, four-hour drive. I actually did my internship from uh, Gramlin. Uh, I did my internship at Bethune-Cookman College. Uh, so, uh, yeah, 
it's about maybe about four hours away from here. Daytona Beach, one of the few one of the few beaches where you can still drive your car on the beach. I, well, I don't know. I don't know now, but during the time when I was there, <laughs> you could still drive your car on the beach, although I didn't have a car at the time. But uh, uh, nice place, nice place. The beach, the beach is only about. Ooh, the beach is maybe a, maybe only about a mile and a half from the campus. You can easily reach it on bicycle. Uh, but uh, I was report. I, w- I will be reporting on on uh, well fire drills. Uh, my time in Dade County Public School as a student, uh, it was routine. It was routine. Uh, I can recall in elementary school. Uh, uh, actually a, a, I would say a fear because, uh, in the third grade, I was, uh, my classroom was actually a wooden structure called a portable, uh, made out of uh, what they call Dade County pine. They burn, it burns really hot. I've been in fires where, uh, uh, how, uh, homes were made out of Dade County pine, and and it would it would uh, take your hair off, <laughs> they burn your ears, you know, it gets pretty hot. But anyway, uh, it was always a fear that you know if this portable that we were in, and also it was it was heated by by a kerosene lighter, an old one of those old style kerosene lighters you could always smell the kerosene so it was kind of like you know scary for a uh a, a child during during that time uh but they did have uh fire drills uh by the time i was in what it, what was called back during that time it was called junior high school now it's called middle schools uh 1970 which was my seventh grade year i was in the sixth grade in middle school but in, in 1969, but 1970 is when Dade County Public Schools uh, was was ordered to uh, bring up to bring the school system up to Brown versus Board of Education, the famous Supreme Court decision. They were being forced to do so. So in turn, in results of that, in some cases, white children were bussed into what used to be black black populated schools and one of them was the middle school that I went to we would have bomb threats <laughs> at least once a month one or two of them at least one or two of them a month bomb threats and they they would have to go through all of the lockers you know that sort of thing uh it wasn't unusual you know at all uh you know, so it was, that was that was like routine, and we didn't mind because the whole idea of being out of class, being out of class, and being out on the playing field while uh, the uh, the police department, the fire department, be on standby, and the police department go in and check lockers and whatnot, that sort of thing, uh, because of a bomb threat. 
uh, high school, high school also as a reaction just before I got there, the high school that I went to, Miami Killian Senior High, uh, it was it was purposely built along Brown versus uh, Brown, the, the famous Brown decision, where it was the first high school in Miami-Dade County that I know of that from its inception uh, put white students and black students in the same location. Uh, in turn, there was a major riot that took place <laughs> out of the students <laughs> in 1970. My, the oldest of, of my siblings, uh, the oldest, she was she was in the the tenth or eleventh grade when that took place. So it was something like seventy or seventy one, uh, and it was it was started by a a, a white male. Uh, I don't know. I, I don't think he physically harmed this black female, but he got in her face and threatened her, and in turn. The black, primarily black male students, just went through beating up on on uh, white people uh, during that time. Uh, the the uh, bomb threats of historical black colleges. I am surprised that, that it doesn't happen much more often. I'm also uh, wouldn't be surprised if actually is actually carried out because the. I would, I was, I would suspect from the standpoint of someone who is uh, would try to try to prevent that from happening, that if it's a to a a terrorist, it would be a good target to do so. Why? Because you you have a large number of non-white black people, so there's less chance that a white person would be harmed. In the in that type of situation, and it can do some uh, some uh, it can it can it can be a, a situation to whereas uh, it, it would really uh, have a negative impact, I think, on on the black uh, ego or attitude. You know, from the standpoint of so many young people being harmed, that normally is trying to better themselves and go out and do good for themselves and perhaps others, that sort of thing. Uh, so, and I went to two of them, Gramlin State University and Langston University. That's it. Much obliged, retired firefighter in Florida. Uh, I think they might refer to those as uh, soft targets. Same way they would talk about like movie theaters and such. When they I mean places, right. uh, you don't have like canine bomb sniffing dog generally at North Carolina A and T and Spelman. Um, you don't have all kinds of uh, homeland security. Irritated genie is generally not hanging out. Uh, the campus of uh, Xavier down in Louisiana. Any of the other HBCUs, Morris Brown, uh, hanging out and checking folks. And what are you doing? Got suspicious activity. So much easier to access that sort of thing. 
Hopefully not, as Irie said. Hopefully not. But also, yeah, I think, too, in this sort of environment, it wouldn't surprise me if they, you know, had an increase having this sort of thing happen even more often. Or, as you said, that it doesn't happen more often with all the technology and such idle, uh, idle time that folks have had under these two years as well. Uh, other folks who dialed in with a hand up, making sure they do not wait till the last minute. Uh, if we missed you completely and you think you have commentary to share, proceed. Hello. Uh, our caller in Georgia. Yes, ma'am. Okay, you hear me. Um, thank you for taking my call. I hope everyone's having the best evening they can have. Um, I guess. Well, currently I have. I'm off from one for six, but I have two full-time jobs, so I miss a lot of things. Um, I didn't know about the issue at Fort Valley, which is. I think an hour away from my house. Um, so sorry for those young people. And, you know, that's not, I'm not saying it's not a a great school, but, you know, it's not as, I guess, famous to some people as Morehouse and Spelman, unless you live in this area, I would assume. Um, so it's not, you know, it's not a known school, so it's probably, you know, it's very easy and accurate, I believe, to assess that this is, it was definitely racism. And I don't know how it's been talked about in the local news, so I have to look that up and see, you know, what's going on. Like I said, I'm working all the time, so I'm not stopping really to watch the news or TV or anything like that. Um, when it comes to the health, um, I definitely agree that, um, you know, of course, the disparities, I guess in my own example this morning, I went to um, urgent care for an urgent reason, of course, um, and the doctor was telling me, you know, take, you know, make sure you remember to take your medicine, you know, to have high blood pressure, which, you know, I need to take my medicine. Um, but, you know, I, every time I go, I go to the doctor and um, I know I'm overweight, you know, it's not really a secret, but no one, they never tell me to lose weight. They just want to give me medicine. And um, I think that's medical malpractice because, I mean, if you see someone that's not a healthy weight, I don't know, recommending that they get to a healthy weight should probably be the first thing that you do. And I do notice that when I go to, I mean, over the past, I've been an adult well over 20 years now, um, they don't really say anything about that. And I know even one, only one doctor one time when she noticed my pressure high was high. She said, oh, just lose 10% of your weight. You know, she didn't even tell me to lose a whole lot of weight. But she did say lose some weight, and that will usually reduce the blood pressure. And I think in that case I did, but I gained the weight back, blah, blah, blah. We don't need to go on about that. So I think even in that case, I don't know if they just don't do that to – um, black people, because I don't take a survey of what happens when white people go to the doctor. I'm not that concerned about that. But, you know, just even that, the little obvious things that, like you said, I don't think they really, I mean, some of it may be based on some stress and this and that, but the result, if you're looking at someone and they're not small, you know, and you're the doctor, you know, you have to tell them the truth about that. Um, I know it's the same thing because I go to the doctor with my mother, and I guess because she's older, I guess 
they think, you know, this is the end. And I, I, I see stories, well, not a lot because I've been working, but I would see stories of people that are older that get in shape and lose weight and things like that. And, you know, she has every opportunity to do so. And the fact that they don't stress that to her is, you know, kind of discerning to me. Even when she went to the doctor in New York and I wasn't there, I'm like, no one ever said that. I mean, that's kind of the first thing I would say. Um, so even in that, just malpractice, the, um, the renting for taking a property that you own, um, I just, I just really believe that they think that black people are dumb. Um, I guess they figure that it's a highly desirable area, so I don't know. I, I haven't been there. I think because it's near the beach. Oh, people want to live near the beach, so anything they can get. But especially those who were affected by that, that just seems ridiculous. And, of course, they're still taking away property. I know recently here they moved Little Richard's old house so they can build a highway through where it used to be here in Macon. So that's where I live, in Macon. Um I think that's all I have from the call, uh, I mean, from the talk this week. And, you know, keep up the constructive work. Thank you. Much obliged. Thank you kindly for dialing in. Um, Self-care, like it's tax season. I know you told us before you are um, tax worker extraordinaire and you know got your new monitor and all that so definitely take time to uh replenish nourish uh, especially if you have high blood pressure like man all that you know extra work and hours and everything i don't know if you're getting adequate rest because that's a big one too but yeah and we've talked about that i think dr ruby lathan many times that she's been on the program talked about it um judith and Layson. I don't know if she talked about it when she was guest with us last year, but it's definitely in her book. And I think that's even a countdown. We just read that in the book club where consistently doctors are not saying like, hey, as opposed to let me stuff 50,000 prescriptions on you, much like Dr. Welsing, we're not going to do that here. Let's eat correctly. They don't do that. It's not nah, 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 as opposed to, you know, hey, maybe look at the diet and change some things up, get some more fruits and veggies in there, get some smoothies, blah, 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 exercise and bang get that weight down and you know have to cram all these prescriptions on you and have you taking all this and side effects and all the rest nah, 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 nah. don't do that obesogenic environment that was what judith and Layson says so many people have talked about that like that's not even a consideration like they don't even ask like what do you eat what's in your refrigerator what have you eaten this week how many vegetables how much takeout I didn't even ask those questions. <laughs> just, let's just get to the pills, man. Get some prescriptions in here. Do, 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 do. Racism, white supremacy. A big advocate of, yeah, fruits, veggies, diet will do wonders for so many folks. Uh, just, man, changing up that diet, getting more fruits, veggies, uh, changing what's on our plate as opposed to getting a whole lot of stuff in our medicine cabinet. Uh, but self-care with all those uh, hours for tax season. No, everybody's trying to get their uh, digits together and such. Uh, let's see. Uh, other folks who dialed in, uh, if you have a hand up, if we missed you totally. 
excuse me, Gus. How can we watch Mandalay? I've been searching high and low. That's all I wanted to ask. <laughs> Reading is more important than watching television. Um, uh, I'm never mind. I was gonna. I was gonna ask a dumb question. I will email you a link. Um, they had Mandalay at the. Uh, that movie is so. We talked about Mandalay with Doctor uh, Kevorkian like last week for folks. If you missed the program. Uh, Mandalay is like one of my favorite films uh, in life. Uh, I talked about some of the special reasons why in that program with uh, Dr. Kevorkian. I was like, I can't believe we spent 13 years on the program and never discussed that film before. Like it would have been a tragedy. I could have, you know, been killed by Dylan Stormroof or something and never got to talk about it on the program. Uh, that movie came out so long ago. I walked into a video store here in Seattle and they actually had it in a like actual box video store uh i thought hey if it was that widespread it's in video store it's got to be wide you know available everywhere maybe not um i thought it was on netflix or whatever but then we had a few people uh who emailed me since the program like man where can we watch mandalay where can we watch mandalay so i guess it's not widely available uh if you have an hour and a half or whatever uh hour and 45 minutes to spare might be worth of you uh to get to see the great danny glover and uh bryce dallas howard uh amongst a few others but very interesting uh flick racist code book manderley as discussed last week on the cows uh other folks who dialed in if we missed you totally proceed Oh, we got everybody? Everybody satisfied? Soon looks like we might have got everybody. Or, oh, looks like some folks may have dropped out. Thought we had some other folks who had a hand up, but it looks like they may have got disconnected or dropped or whatever the case. Uh, we'll give a sec or two. Maybe they'll dial back in and get it together. Uh, either way, we will be here on Monday, 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific, white people permitting uh, Professor Aya Gruber, the feminist war on crime, the unexpected role of women's liberation in mass incarceration. Uh, looking forward to chatting it up. Black male rapist all over uh, the book. She goes into detail talking about how a lot of the uh, aggressive changes that white women have advocated over the past 60 years or so uh, many of the times have had uh, devastating uh, and carceral consequences for black males like Anthony Broadwater the Central Park Five the Brownsville Five Khalif Prouder and eh, lots more with that Matthew Cotton forgot we were going to read that in the book club picking cotton lots more long list uh, she adds a few more uh, names in the book as well but uh, that'll be on Monday very much looking forward to it uh, the book club Thursday uh, man in the high castle session number two just got started uh, if you missed out in the archives you can check it out incidentally I attempted to upload yesterday's broadcast neutralizing workplace racism for whatever reason it did not work initially like I kept trying kept I mean this went on for like hours uh, 
yet Friday evening, yesterday. Didn't work. Kept trying, kept trying, kept trying. Uh, like, I'd seen this happen a few times before, but, I mean, it had it had been, like, years, I think, since there was just some problem where it wouldn't upload. Uh, so I kept trying, kept trying. It's like 12, 31 o'clock. Like, I'm going to bed. We'll get up. Try it again tomorrow morning. I get up this morning. I literally, I don't make an attempt to do anything. I had the uh, tab on my browser where I was attempting to upload the program so y'all could download it, listen, whatever. Uh, I had the tab where it was not working, not working, not working. I just left it. I literally closed my laptop end of Friday, get up this morning, open my laptop, tab is there. I don't press a button. I don't refresh the page. Nothing. Just the computer turns on, boop, gets online, boop, page loads, program uploads immediately, like seconds, 20 seconds, bam, program's there. Within minutes, it's in the feed, all of that. So I have no idea what happened yesterday. I didn't even do anything today. I just opened the computer up and it uploaded. So it should be available now. Uh, if anybody, if you attempted to access the neutralizing workplace racism broadcast from Friday and it wasn't there initially, like last night or early this morning, it should be there now. Um, don't, and I don't even have an explanation as to why it didn't work, but it's there now. Everybody satisfied? We didn't miss anyone. Grand. We will be here on Monday, white people permitting. Uh, much obliged to the folks who tuned in, uh, joined us live. Hope it was worthy of your Saturday evening. Sobriety would be best. Uh, sometimes it's good if you are sober because so many of the other people around you are already not sober. It's nice to have at least one person who is not under the influence. In addition to being sober, if you're out and about, not a good time for verbal confrontations. Uh, you do not know if this is uh, a plainclothes enforcement officer, off-duty enforcement officer, regular old white woman with a gun. You have no idea. If you didn't leave your residence prepared to die and or kill, maybe both, exit. There's nothing to discuss. There's no that tacky metaphor, saving face. You don't talk to me. And who do you think you are? You don't talk to me. <laughs> if you are a victim of white supremacy, there is nothing more embarrassing than that designation. If it truthfully applies to you, that is the greatest insult in the universe, bar none. So until we take care of that, like, <laughs> Whatever. They can say whatever they want to. Going home, working on solving this problem. Let's get out of here. That's the attitude. If you are in a vehicle, you're sober, buckled, not on the cell phone, something like that happens, get out of there immediately. We need all of our attention, so we're not on the cell phone or any other craziness. Maybe don't have the music up too, too loud trying to do the small things we can to minimize contact with race soldiers we always say it badge or no sometimes they don't have a badge it might just be that they have a steel pipe creator we ask that you help us remain patient with other black people highly melanated or no 
We ask that you help us remain patient with ourselves. Remind us to demonstrate the highest levels of black self-respect at all times, in all places, each and every time we are in contact with another black person. It has been time replace white supremacy with justice immediately. No name calling, no gossiping. We already have a lot of black people who are having a very tough time. They might really appreciate it. At minimum, if you can't check in and see how they're doing, give them a hug and wish them well, a fruit basket, a smoothie. If you can't do that, at minimum, I won't call you a coon. I'll think it into myself, in my head. I'll be calling you a coon all day long, but I'm not going to call you a coon. No name calling. That'll be my contribution to black mental health. I will not call any black people names. Minimum we can do. Cal signing out. Thanks all for tuning in. Nigga, you so brainwashed. I'm a victim, no brother. Problem. You're a victim. Uh, I'm a up. victim of 400 years of conditioning. Shut up. The man has programmed my conditioning. Mm -hmm. Even my conditioning has been conditioned. Uh.